welcome to the other side of midnight on September 12th. Greetings wherever you might be, whatever your time of day is, to our family around the planet. This is Kinthea, producer for the other side of midnight.com, and I'm holding space for Richard, who, where he is living, is being. Uh, How shall I say? The dust and debris is intense. I live close to the California fires, and a couple days ago, the skies were red where I live, and the air was actually fresh because it was high in the jet stream, carrying that to New Mexico where Richard was, and three days ago, the index for air pollution was at 1240. Didn't know it could go that high. Today, fortunately, the air is calm and it's much, much better, but the congestion that it created for Richard has made it really difficult for him to even be able to speak right now. So I invite you all to send him good thoughts uh, as he recovers from this congestion. We find ourselves in critical times. Parts of the world are on fire. Other parts are freezing. All this is compounded by the forced lockdown and destruction of lives and livelihood. And most of all, the paralyzing reaction to deep fear being programmed into us and the revelation of hidden agendas and betrayals. So we ask ourselves, how did we get here? When and how was our first Denny hijacked? Tonight, we are honored to have several members of the Lawyers Committee for 911 Inquiry, along with Matt Campbell, to join us in a discussion of profound discovery. Here is a brief highlight of our guests. You can find fuller bios on tonight's guest show page on the other side of midnight.com. Tonight's banner is called 911 Justice Matters. If you're looking for it in the future, and it is September 12th. The overall mission of the Lawyers Committee for 911 Inquiry is to develop and implement a detailed legal strategy to achieve transparency and accountability under the law regarding unprosecuted crimes of 911 and now, in addition, the anthrax attack. Dave Meiswinkle, a practicing criminal defense attorney in New Jersey since 1989, is the current president of Lawyers Committee for 911, along with a board member. Attorney Mick Harrison is a litigation director of the Lawyers Committee for 911 Inquiry, as well as a public interest lawyer in private practice. Harrison has 25 years of experience litigating whistleblower protection lawsuits and environmental protection citizen suits nationwide. Architect Richard Gage is a San Francisco Bay Area architect of 30 years, a member of the American Institute of Architects and the founder and president of Architects and Engineers for 911 Truth. And of course, Barbara Honiger. She's on the board and an officer on the Lawyers Committee, as well as a member of the Grand Jury Petition Drafting Committee. Barbara served as a White House policy analyst 
Director of the Attorney General's Law Review at the Department of Justice. And from 1995 to 2011, Barbara was the Senior Military Affairs Journalist at the Naval Postgraduate School, which is our Department of Defense Pentagon School of Premier Science Technology and the National Security Affairs Graduate Research University. So folks, we all want justice for those who gave their lives in this tragic event. Here's how you can help us bring to justice the criminals behind these heinous crimes by supporting the Lawyers Committee for 911 Inquiry by going to lc411.org. That's LC for Lawyers Committee for for 911org There you will find a donation button and the new Anthrax Congressional Petition. Matt Campbell is the brother of Jeff Campbell, who died in the World Trade Center at 911. His efforts for justice are featured in the 911 documentary, Incontrovertible. And he has spoken at numerous 911 events. He continues to press officials in the UK and the US to achieve justice for Jeff. And Barbara, dear, please come on and fill in that sentence that got clipped. Welcome, Barbara. Are you Hi, there? Cynthia, can you hear me? Yes, I know. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, um, just to complete my bio, uh, I am also on the board and an officer of the Lawyers Committee, in addition uh, to being on the Petition Drafting Committee. Um, okay. And the rest of my bio um, that you got out, part of the first sentence, um, is that from 1995, actually to 2011, not 2001, I was the Senior Military Affairs Journalist at the Naval Postgraduate School, which is our Department of Defense, DODs, the Pentagon's um, premier science, technology, and national security affairs graduate research university. So um, that, that completes my bio. <laughs> Thank you. And if I may, I'd like to also add that I, in sometime in the very, very soon few minutes, I will be joined by my co-hosts, Timothy Saunders and Annette Driscoll, uh, we are hosting The Other Side of the News on Friday night, so they will be joining the, me as well. It was a last-minute <laughs> event for them, and they will drop in when they are able to. So, Barbara, I'd like to uh, turn it over to you. I know you have an idea of how you'd like this conversation to go. Uh, thank you for uh, letting me open. Um, I'd just like everybody to know that... Um, uh, we're wishing Richard Hoagland all good health, and uh, we're hoping that that jet stream <laughs> moves all that uh, smoke from the fires up really high, and and uh, hopefully maybe to the moon or beyond. Yes, or to Mars. <laughs> or to Mars, right? Right, exactly. Mars needs more atmosphere, whether it's got smoke in it or not. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, so the next thing I'd like to say is that um, for those listeners who are new tonight and weren't on. The other side of the news last night, um, we had a wonderful two-hour show with you and Timothy and Annetta, and it's just it's delightful to have you as our host again tonight. That's number two. And number three is I'd just like to say that it has been a wild ride. 
uh, for us in the Lawyers Committee on the Board and the Anthrax Petition Research and Drafting Committee that we're all on on the program tonight, not Richard Gage and Matt, but those of us from the Lawyers Committee, the three of us. And it's been a wild ride. Um, we have made our deadline, and it is a phenomenal document, which literally proves, absolutely proves, that the government's Lee Harvey Oswald patsy of the anthrax letter attacks, Bruce Ivins, did not do it and could not have done it, and goes a long way uh, in the petition on the evidence of which uh, U.S. government slash military slash military government contractor laboratories uh, almost certainly did. So uh, it's, it's an incredible document, and uh, we are filing that with the Congress. You're going to hear more about that from, from David uh, and Mick and myself later as well. And for now, I'd just like to say what an honor it is to be associated with the Lawyers Committee and I'd just like to, as I did last night, read the famous quote from Margaret Mead. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. That's the famous anthropologist Margaret Mead. And I believe this in the depth of my being. And that's why I'm reading again tonight. And I just want everybody to know that our Lawyers Committee is that organization right now. And to prove that to you, and I may, I may, my voice may break up as I say this, but this afternoon or on the East Coast time this evening, the second of three days of Richard Gage's Architects and Engineers Conference, online conference, called Justice Rising, for good reason, because of our Lawyers Committee work for 9-11 Truth and account Legal Accountability, on Richard's second day today, he had David Ray Griffin, the dean of the 9-11 Truth Movement, who has written 12 books, if you can imagine, on 9-11, facts and evidence. And David Ray Griffin, at the very end of that long session that was also also involves Neil Parrott and Professor Stephen Jones, two professors. And so David Ray Griffin was asked by Richard Gage at the very end, what gives you hope for the movement? And after a pause, Professor Griffin said, the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry. That's how important we are. So I'll turn it over to Dave. I want to thank you, Barbara, and the Lawyers Committee for all of humanity, really, because this work is so needed to reveal the truth and uh, appreciate all the dedication and time and energy you've put into bringing these revelations to us. We need to know. And um, on behalf of all of us, I say thank you. You're welcome. Thanks. So Dave? Yes, uh, uh, thanks, Barbara. That was, that was a, a good intro there by you. You know, I didn't realize that uh, David Ray Griffith said that that's humbling, and yes, it, uh, yes. actually, it actually it puts an extra uh, burden on you in a, in a sense. You know, it's like uh, sometimes you don't see the forest for the trees, or you don't see yourself, or you know, us as an organization as to what we uh, represent. You just get out there and you plug away because you're motivated, probably since you were young, to uh, try to realize the truth, to fight you know, bad things and uh, 
but uh, to hear that from uh, David Ray Griffin is, is quite an honor. I, I you know, I, I'm almost speechless uh, by what you just said, Barbara. But, I know. Uh, I was weeping right after he said it, Dave. Sure. But to, to put it into context, now I did this the other day in the Jason Goodman show. And, and I see, uh, I'm hearing an echo. Yeah, there's an echo. I don't know what it is. Do, do you hear it still? No, it, there it's gone. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I uh, I did a quote too. I think we all have favorite quotes. I have a, a lot of my favorite quotes come from the founding fathers. But uh, putting it into the uh, context though of where we are and what we're dealing with uh, when we talk about 9-11 and all the other issues that uh, are spawned from 9-11 and, and things that before 9-11, uh, this comes to my mind, and it's to me it uh, it, it empowers me in a sense. It uh, it goes like this: For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And that comes from Ephesians six twelve in the Bible. And uh, it just sort of like stirs me and puts me into some type of context that uh, uh, dealing with the evil before us, all right? <laughs> so uh, what we're talking about is 9-11. And of course, that's the most outrageous criminal act in the history of our nation. And uh, it was uh, pitifully not properly investigated. Uh, the link we have with architects and engineers is that for years uh, they plowed the ground and they uh, they created a lot of evidence and they rallied a lot of people to try to find the truth. You know, when they talk about 9-11 truth, uh, that's, that's where it begins. And uh, the lawyers are a later phenomena, uh, more recent in the last few years. But what we've been able to do is to uh, gather the evidence that they did, they had gathered, and put it in a legal format and get it into the court of law, where we're trying now to uh, get a grand jury petition. We have a grand jury petition, but try to get a grand jury in the Southern District in Manhattan, and that's where the Twin Towers were in Building 7, and all that controversy. And certainly you could take up many shows, uh, you know, if, if you wanted to go and talk about all that evidence, and maybe we will today and with Richard on and Matt, I'm sure we're going to get into it. But what we did is uh, we took the next step, and we're waiting right now, and Mick is uh, litigating that. Uh, uh, we're waiting, waiting right now for a judge to uh, render a decision one way or another, and if he uh, rules in our favor, it'll be a landmark, I think, and That'll be a reason to celebrate for sure, and uh, it may, uh, uh, you know, take some of the uh, the jadedness that we look at our court system away from us if we get a positive ruling, and if he uh, rules against us, we're going to appeal it. So uh, the our action there in New York was symbolic and uh, not symbolic, but historic, really. Uh, what we're doing right now, though, and what Barbara alluded to. And, uh, and before I get into that, what we would like to do as an organization is that the government has been so poor at investigating this outrageous crime where 3,000 people were murdered, 
and people are still dying from the, the toxins from that day. The first responders uh, terribly, uh, you know, were are victims of that. Uh, but uh, what we uh, want to do is uh, to examine all the crime scenes. So we start with New York, and and uh, now we're uh, into uh, and doing anthrax investigation. And after this, uh, and of course we're going to spend a lot, I think most of the time talking about that. Uh, we have other plans to do uh, government misconduct and obstruction, which you can imagine how large a grand jury petition that would be. We have to decide whether we're going to segment that into separate areas because almost every government department is seems to be, at least on the on the surface, uh, guilty or of, of some sort of uh, uh, misconduct or obstruction. In other words, the, the crime should have never happened. And if they did happen, they should have been properly investigated. And either uh, the prevention or the uh, proper remediation has been done. Uh, and then there's Shanksville. You may know that. That's uh, flight, uh, United Flight 93 that uh, mysteriously uh, crashes, uh, allegedly, in Pennsylvania. And there's all types of uh, questions that raises, which we've looked at some of those questions. And then the very controversial Pentagon, where there's a number of different theories from, you know, incredibly uh, brilliant people. <laughs> and they uh, have all different ways to look at uh, what uh, hit the Pentagon and what happened there. And that's where American 77, uh, you know, allegedly crashed into the Pentagon. But uh, now we're faced, not faced, we, uh, for the last six months, we have a uh, broke down into a, basically an anthrax committee uh, of seven people. And uh, there are four attorneys on that. Mick and myself are, are two of the attorneys. And John O'Kelly, who's one of our board members out of New York, and Bill Jacoby, too, out of New York. Both, uh, well, Bill, Bill Jacoby's not on that committee, I'm sorry. But uh, Jane Clark out of Texas is on that committee. And uh, and then there's, uh, there's three uh, incredible... Uh, researchers, Barbara is one of them, and, and Graham McQueen, you may know, and, and we have a third uh, incredible woman who uh, is involved also. And uh, what uh, we've done is we put together a, uh, a document that was drafted uh, recently by, by Mick, uh, how we work. We uh, get uh, drafts, and we all have input into them, and we all make suggestions, and, and then Mick it does contours it to uh, you know what seems to be appropriate, and uh, then we agree on how how well it's written and uh, and if it's uh, factual and if it, it it strikes the court, it does what it's supposed to do. And uh, we have, as Barbara said, a document that has been now submitted uh, or is in the process of being Congress uh, shortly, and it it them to get involved. Now this is a little different than in in New York City. In New York City, we're asking for a grand jury. And uh, in uh, Washington, D.C., uh, previously, uh, there was a grand jury uh, concerning the anthrax. What happened was that when the, uh, the alleged suspect was uh, died, uh, they said that he was the, the guy, and they just closed it down. And, uh, but we found out, though, as we want it reopened, but even more than that, we want Congress to look at it because of, of a lot of uh, problems that we've seen and others have seen before us. 
and in particular, as Barbara mentioned, uh, Bruce Ivins, who's, or Dr. Ivins, who was a, a world's expert himself in anthrax and vaccines. He, he created vaccines. Uh, he was very uh, beloved by his uh, compatriots, by people that he worked with. And we were able to make contact with some of them. And uh, three uh, colonels are uh, basically witnesses that, that, uh, to his, uh, his, his good character. And they gave us declarations that are in our, our, our uh, exhibit list that support the, uh, the grand jury petition. And they not only testify to his character, but they also testify to the fact that at USEMRID, and that's the United States Army Medical Institute for Infectious Diseases, Fort Detrick, that they, uh, they didn't have the, uh, the uh, equipment or the knowledge to do what the government says they did. And what they say happened and what they were responsible for was in the middle of September, right after 9-11, about a week, uh, a, a, a number of letters were sent to New York City, in particular, to, uh, to Tom Brokaw, uh, CBS, NBC, and ABC. And then about three weeks later, uh, another group of letters were sent to two United States senators, Tom Daxchel and Patrick Leahy. And these uh, gentlemen were very key in slowing down the momentum for the uh, Patriot Act, which uh, uh, the Bush-Cheney administration is really trying to push. And they just happened to get these letters, which... Uh, it actually could have killed them many times over. Uh, there's a lot of contro not controversy, but it's sort of uh, it's uh, it's sort of interesting. And uh, Mick can go into the finer details of this uh, type of anthrax and the the controversy surrounding it. But the first uh, batch of anthrax was a a cruder, a brownish type anthrax that would clump a little bit more together. The uh, second a uh, 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 batch of anthrax that the U.S. senators got was the finest anthrax that anybody had seen in, in many years and ever seen, actually. Uh, it was 10 times stronger estimated than what had been previously used. Uh, back in 1969, Richard Nixon uh, closed down our, our bioweapons, uh, you know, bioweapons output in this country, supposedly. Uh, and in 1972, a treaty was signed uh, or agreed upon to uh, limit the, uh, the bioweaponry, and it was only supposed to be used in a, uh, a defensive way to create vaccines so you don't have a small amount. Now, some countries, they didn't abide by that behind the scenes, and uh, there was some proliferation behind the scenes. And it, it seems like during the latter part of it, America, the United States may have been involved with something similar. So the uh, anthrax that was uh, uh, directed at the two U.S. senators, uh, as I said, uh, it was so uh, powerful that on one gram of it, you could fit a trillion spores, if you can believe it, a trillion spores. And I say that again, a trillion spores. When I heard that and read it, I had to read it and read it. I thought it was a misprint. But that's how incredibly sophisticated it was so sophisticated it's made so it goes into your lungs real easy and the uh, the people from Fort uh, for, from Yosemite the scientists who were studying it at first they got the Thomas Daxel stuff 
uh, they didn't even themselves know how to handle it, and they uh, actually contaminated themselves. Twelve of them were contaminated uh, initially. So that's how, uh, you know, how uh, this was energized. It, the description, if you read it, it's, it's coming up the test tube. You try to look at it on a plate with your microscope, and it won't sit still. It goes off the microscope. It's alive, and it's it's a, like almost like it's aerosolized. It's fine. It's so fine. It's it's uh, it's like like a a vapor. Like it's like a gas. It's it's so it's it just moves. You know. So they they've never seen anything like that. So that we're trying to say that Bruce Ivins created that, and at at Fort Detrick. Uh, what they create is liquid. They didn't. They don't deal with the powder stuff. That takes real sophisticated people to deal with, and that, that were beyond uh, beyond Bruce Ivins' uh, capabilities. Now uh, Barbara mentioned that. Uh, uh, I don't know if she mentioned particularly who they were, but they uh, and and we'll we'll talk about it and flesh it out a little bit. But there were uh, two uh, special uh, uh, groups that were. Uh, really key on these uh, sort of military industrial establishment uh, type. And uh, one was Battelle and uh, Memorial, and that's up in uh, Ohio, West Jefferson. And the other is uh, is Dugway Proving Grounds in Utah. And they are connected really to this super uh, – well, actually, they're connected to both batches of, of, uh, of, of the uh, anthrax, but certainly uh, – they had the capabilities. The only ones, probably, uh, that we thus far know, had the capabilities of doing that. So, what the government does, instead of going uh, and, and looking at the, the more likely suspects, they uh, they crunch it and they go after an unlikely suspect who has some mental health problems, and they squeeze the heck out of him. Now, they had done that to pre- people previous. They had done it to. Uh, Two fellows in Pennsylvania, and I, I mentioned this yesterday. Those guys lost their job. They did it a doctor in New York. He lost his marriage. They did do a scientist named Percy Mixel. He lost his life because he uh, they made him drink. He became drinking and drinking, and they put that much pressure on you. And they they made uh, uh, a guy named Thomas Hatfield drink and drink and drink. But uh, Hatfield was a he was a different type of guy. He was a really a strong uh, person. Uh, character, not I don't say about character, but he was just of constitution. He's a warrior. He's like he's a warrior. Looks like a linebacker, and uh, he fought back and went public after they embarrassed him with uh, a circus of media coming when they were raiding his house on his warrants and everything. They had the TV cameras rolling and everything, and uh, he eventually sued them and won five million dollars. And uh, then they went after Ivans, they squeezed Ivans. And uh, Ivan's is more fragile. They knew it. They were advised by their psychiatrists, but they kept on squeezing him. They uh, they tried to uh, bribe his son with money and cars, and they tried to. They told his daughter uh, uh, terrible things. They confronted his wife in the mall and said, "Your husband's a killer," and and uh, you know, killed five people. And, and uh, they did that kind of things in the family. And James. Uh, and, yes. Yeah, and we're almost to the break. I'd just like to give a big picture comment just before the break. And that is what you've just heard from Dave Meiswinkle, the president and executive director of the Lawyers Committee, is that not only did the Patsy, the 
FBI's and the Bush-Cheney administration's patsy for the anthrax attacks, which were a weapon of mass destruction attack, not only on our mainstream media offices, but on the Congress of the United States, the heart of our democracy. Um, what you've just heard is the evidence, and it's a, these are facts, that this was not only a weapon of mass destruction, the Bruce Ivins couldn't have done it and didn't do it, that the mass murder perpetrators of the anthrax attacks are still at large. They still have this anthrax, and they could do it again and worse. Um, but what's in, really important here uh, to know uh, is that um, this was a weapon of mass destruction and that these people are still at large. So I, I just wanted to make that big picture comment while we were getting down into the, the details of the other. The other side of the news is a current and dynamic companion to augment the discussions from the other side of midnight. We investigate, explore, and extrapolate facts to gain better understanding of current affairs and events, and thus to bring comfort and calm to our wide international audience. It's a spontaneous commentary based on well-verified references vetted through vigilance and discernment. Our desire is to awaken your imagination with questions. Questions that have not been asked, yet need answering. The other side of the news is a place where you can come and be with us in community. Learning new things, asking questions, getting compelling answers, and interesting viewpoints. It's about curiosity. We present thought-provoking questions to incite your mind, propelling you to see the world in another way. Propelling you to see the world in another way. With clear insights and fresh perspectives on global events. Tune in for a balanced view of the other side of the news. And the other side of the news can be heard here on this network, on this channel, on this website, on this URL, every Friday evening, two hours, 7 to 9 p.m. Pacific Time. I warn you, you'll miss it at your own peril. Welcome back to the other side of midnight. This is Kinthea standing in for Richard, and I'm joined now also by my co-hosts from the other side of the news, Annette Driscoll and Timothy Saunders, and we were just in conversation with David Meiswinkle and Barbara Honiger, who summed up the impact of the anthrax investigation and what it could happen So I'd like to welcome my co-hosts and bring you back on, David and Barbara. Okay. Timothy, Annetta, 
Good. I'll, I'll just I'll just wrap it up here just, uh, and let Nick talk a little bit. But uh, what's really significant is that uh, Richard Lambert was the uh, FBI inspector in charge of uh, what the uh, investigation was called Amerithrex. And he uh, addressed our our committee, our anthrax committee, for about three hours, took questions. And uh, he had, uh, after four years, he was fed up with it because of he was uh, being uh, undermined in every which way. And he wrote, when he left, a 2,000-page document, which he told us we probably could only get through a Congress. Congress could probably get it. Supposedly in that document were uh, 16 pages or so that were devoted to uh, exculpating evidence connected to Ivan's, Dr. Ivan's. That's what I, my my assessment was, what he was telling us. And um, he didn't believe that Ivan's was the uh, anthrax killer. Uh, he said the evidence was far more exculpatory, which means, you know, he was innocent. And then uh, the evidence that was gathered, a lot of circumstantial evidence that the FBI had had no direct evidence that he was the guy. But uh, when we talked to the scientists at Fort Dietrich that we were able to talk to, uh, to a person, they were very defensive of, of Ivan's and saying that uh, he didn't do it. He couldn't have done it for a number of reasons. One is they knew him uh, personally and they had worked with him for many years. And he wasn't the type of person to do that. And uh, but the, in the practical side of it was that for Dietrich, uh, they didn't do that type of anthrax. As I mentioned before, they did a liquid type that they used for their vaccines. This other uh, type was uh, was sophisticated. You needed uh, heavier and bigger fermenters and milling capacity. And you also needed the knowledge to do it. There's a sophisticated micro encapsulation which puts the silicon inside the sort of the, the spore in a way in the crude and uh, the earlier anthrax, the, uh, I mean, the silicon was outside sort of, and uh, now it was sort of embedded inside. And it was, it, it was, uh, uh, as I said, so fine. And the likely suspects, again, uh, they didn't go after, uh, which is like, come on, as soon as he dies, they close the, the, uh, the case down there was a guy, a fellow named uh, Spurzel, who was an expert in the anthrax, and he was at the Yosemite at the time. He's passed now, but uh, he was just said, isn't that convenient? You know, the guy dies and they close the case. Uh, and so, in a sense, we want to reopen that case. What we've said, and when we made the announcement in New York the other day, what we were doing, uh, three uh, different areas that at least uh, I mentioned, and, and Mick may want to mention others, uh, and it's Barbara, too, was one is that Bruce Ivins was innocent. Two is the FBI uh, investigation wasn't a, uh, a, an honorable investigation. Right? It was, it was, uh, it was a, a very obstructive. It was uh, very uh, misguided, it seemed like. It w was very deceptive, and it didn't seem to be heading towards trying to get the truth. And in, in, the indication is the head of it left because of that, right? For some of those reasons, the head of uh, Richard Lambert. And uh, then the uh, third prong that I stress is that uh, the system being as corrupt as it is, unfortunately, and we've seen that up in, you know, throughout all the 9-11 crime scenes, 
is that we need some intercession from Congress here. Now, formerly uh, Congressman uh, Rush Holt and, and uh, Congressman Madler, they uh, sponsored a bill, uh, I, I think it was 721 House resolution, that eventually, uh, I believe the Obama administration squashed it or didn't go where it was supposed to go. What they wanted to do was set up a national commission to investigate anthrax like they did to the 9-11. And uh, we would stress something like that, or certainly something that had independent counsel. So we're going to to do this uh, now to the Congress. Now, previously, we were going to submit the grand jury petition uh, this weekend. And the reason we didn't is because we got new evidence and uh, we, we discovered new evidence. So we, we're going to, in addition to a petition to Congress, sometime in October, we're going to go down to Washington. And we're going to then present a, a new grand jury petition. So we'll have two grand jury petitions, one in New York, one the World Trade Center uh, controlled demolition evidence of bombs, you know, explosions happening there. And then we'll have another one down in, in Washington, D.C., evidence that the FBI obstructed an investigation, that Bruce Ivins was innocent, and that we are calling on either honest U.S. attorneys or an independent counsel or Congress to get involved. And I'll turn it over to Mick and or Barbara. <laughs> Thanks. Mate, Dave, it's Timothy here. Thank Before you. we move on, and um, we have more real estate in this show. Yesterday evening we were talking for two hours and so we had to keep it a little bit short. But we have the luxury of an extra hour this evening. May I just uh, take a very slight detour uh before we move on too far. I hope hope you don't mind Mick. Um the for a start, let's let's talk anthrax because anthrax is a word, but what does it actually mean to people? What are the symptoms of anthrax? I'd like to just fill up a few data points to make a make an observation. Yesterday we talked about it, but the listeners may not have heard yesterday's show yet. Um, so, how, how would somebody react to the different types of anthrax? Well, what, the only the only people I know is the people that you know. You read about the accounts of what they went through. Uh, I mean, what I remember that you start feeling crappy, <laughs> you feel lousy. If, I think you feel at first you're getting the flu or something, but it, you, it never goes away. You have high fevers, you'll be throwing up and things of that nature. And it's, it sounds like a miserable, totally miserable. I, I think I mentioned uh, when we were speaking that I remember one of the doctors that looked at the, uh, that the, uh, the microscope of the, uh, the, the fellow, uh, I think uh, Mr. Stevens, he was the first person to die October 5th. And, uh, you know, he contracted, he felt it at the end of September. He's starting to feel a little lousy. It, it doesn't, it takes a, a number of days before the, it totally hits you. And I believe if you get it early, like within the first 24 hours or so, if you get Cipro or something, you can actually beat it. There's three different types of anthrax. So you're ta we're talking about inhalation anthrax. That's the real fine stuff that they sent to the senator's and uh, that will kill you easily. And uh, apparently, uh, we said that there was two different uh, uh, male, uh, you know, that, that one once was sent early in, uh, late, in the middle of September to New York City, and one was sent uh, three weeks later to uh, to Washington. But there was uh, some uh, scientists says that there was a third one. There may have been to Mr. Stevens down in Florida, and mm -hmm. he uh, was, as I said, the first to die. When they looked at his blood and his, uh, you know, under a microscope, they looked at his lungs, at his lungs, they were like teeming with worms. They're parasites, they're bacteria. It's, it just multiplies, multiplies, multiplies to it just, it just 
you know, suffocates you, kills you miserably. Uh, it's, it's, uh, but I can tell you, uh, you know, I didn't really study it. Uh, maybe Mick and, and Barbara, I mean, I follow up on it next time I have that question because this may be an issue for a long time. I'd like to be ans- be able to answer it a little better. But it's a miserable way to die. Okay. No, so, it, so it is absolutely fatal. I mean, there's no question about it. Most people will pass away from it. Is that right? Yeah, no, no. If I could just jump in. Um, mm-hmm. Nick, as Nick mentioned, there are two major types. One is inhalation anthrax. That's the deadly one. It, you absolutely have to have an uh, anti-anthrax uh, antibiotic quickly like Cipro, but there are others. If you're allergic to Cipro, some people are, not many. Um, that is very, very deadly. Um, because it gets directly into the lungs. Um, the other kind is cutaneous or on the skin. And I happen to know that the, uh, I, I looked it up once, um, you can just Google it, symptoms of anthrax. Um, cutaneous or skin anthrax, um, one of the main symptoms is little black spots uh, on your on your skin. Um, so I happen to know that's one of the symptoms because I had to go get Cipro once because um, anthrax is actually in the soil in many places on Earth, and uh, apparently it's in the soil here in Carmel Valley where I live. I was going to ask you if it's a naturally occurring entity yeah. or if it's something which has been man-made. Oh, well, it's naturally occurring, but then they take it and they bioweaponize it, which is what happened especially, my God, with the one trillion spores per gram, extremely fine dried powderized anthrax to this day. The uh, government claims, the FBI and other agencies claim, that they still cannot to this day uh, reproduce that uh, highly bioweaponized anthrax that went to the senators Leahy and Dasha to this day. They call that reverse engineering, and they said they couldn't do that. that uh, Mr. Lambert told us that. But there's a third type of anthrax, too, and that's an anthrax that if you eat some bad food, you digest digestive anthrax. Yeah. It's not as uh, serious as the inhalation anthrax. Uh, but you still can die from it. You can probably die from all of them. The the one that I heard that Barbara referred to, it wasn't necessarily little black spots. It was big black sores eventually that can grow. And there is ointments and things that, I mean, there's antibiotics for it. And that becomes like kind of obvious. Uh, but, uh, you know, when we, in talking to some of the, one of the scientists that it was involved here, uh, he, he was telling me about plague. I never knew it. They said there's a couple of cases of plague every year in the United States out west and in, in the southwest. Uh, so there there are these uh, different, uh, you know, pathogens that we don't even know about. And, uh, you know, because uh, I guess our elevated society is maybe a little cleaner than it used to be. But this anthrax, like Barbara said, was uh, highly processed uh, and it couldn't have even been processed at, uh, at uh, Yosemite. It had to be processed uh, in a a special, uh, more or less like it seems to me, a military defense type contracting agency where it is a bioweapon. This is the first bioweapon attack, uh, at least on Congress ever, right? And, uh, you know, bioweapons now are, when President Nixon sort of outlawed them in this country, you'd think that was a good thing or he did it for good reasons. Well, certainly it was a good thing. But the reasons he did it, he didn't want the the less powerful countries to get their little atomic bomb. They little because this stuff. If you read accounts of smallpox, it's even worse than anthrax. So smallpox is is, is is really nasty. And uh, uh, so, but they have countries out there right now uh, have that. 
you know, they, they do have that. And it, 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 it may be more than we wanted. There's been a proliferation actually since this period of time where uh, a lot of uh, little private uh, research companies started developing. And it's, it's like uncontrollable now. We're going to have a speaker at, at an event tomorrow, Francis Boyle, who wrote the Bioweapons Treaty. He's an attorney, and he's going to talk to us about the, uh, the bioweapons. And he's going to start with the anthrax, but he may end up with uh, COVID and beyond. Uh, you know, we're going to see where he goes with this. But uh, so, uh, yeah, again, I guess that's what I wanted to say for right, that question right there. Um, I'd like to step in and just say that we were going to bring on Richard and Matt, and it's now 10 to the hour, and we still haven't heard from Mick. Well, but we promised to bring in Richard and Matt for at least 10 minutes in this hour. Right, so that's now. That's right now. I know. So can we do that? Keith, can you connect us, please? Well, hello. Hi, Richard. Hello, Bob. How you doing, Richard? Good, how are you? Okay. Good evening, Richard. Hi, everybody. Uh, this is Richard Gage with Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. I'm a 30-year architect uh, and member of the American Institute of Architects and founder of AE 9-11 Truth. Uh, we've been at it for uh, 14 years now, 3,300 architects and engineers demanding a new investigation into the destruction of all three World Trade Center skyscrapers on 9-11. Um, today we've been involved uh, in the middle, we're right in the middle of our online conference. We started this conference uh, with uh, uh, Matt Campbell, who's seeking an inquest, and he'll be on the show very shortly, uh, a new inquest into his brother's death. Jeff, his brother, died on the 106th floor of the North Tower on 9-11. He was in a conference there. they, they claim that he, is, uh, he, he died as a result of plane impacts and the ensuing fires that brought down the towers. Uh, we have been producing evidence for 14 years, however, that shows that both of the Twin Towers and the third tower that collapsed on 9-11 that hardly anybody knows about, World Trade Center Building 7, uh, all three of those towers were brought down by explosive controlled demolition with incendiaries. And that's what we're going to be spending uh, the next hour at. So I sure hope everybody will join us. But if you can't, I want to give you an opportunity right now to visit our website, which is ae911truth.org, and see the important uh, legal case here. We can take the evidence we've been collecting for 14 years Uh, for the explosive demolition and put it into an international court, in this case, the UK. Uh, There, uh, the Attorney General will be reviewing uh, all of this uh, information, uh, which one of the top attorneys in the UK, uh, Nick Stanage of Dowdy Street Chambers, um, uh, who has successfully fought the government on many uh, occasions, very high-level advisor to the UN and a coroner himself. He's looked at our evidence. He agrees uh, strongly that it is irrefutable, that it uh, will almost necessarily require the attorney general to to recommend a new inquest uh, to the high court in the UK. So we're very excited about this. 
they're the most expensive attorney uh, that I've heard of, $500 an hour. Un, uh, 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 unbelievable in terms of comparing that with my own salary. <laughs> but <laughs> with these guys are really, really good. And uh, they're going to produce for us for the first time uh, so far. We've got plenty of great irons in the fire with the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, which we're going to be talking about also in the second hour. But um, this is an opportunity to raise the $100,000 that is required for this entire effort. Uh, all that money goes to the attorney, to the, 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 the Campbell family for their legal expenses. Uh, so this is a, a, a for sure deal. Uh, you know, nothing's no one. The attorney's not going to uh, swear on a stack of Bibles that this will succeed for us. Uh, but he's uh, as confident in it as he has been in anything. Uh, so very, very exciting for us. Matt will be on to tell his story and his brother's story, and uh, and let you know uh, he's met with the attorney himself, um, and he, he's very, very impressed. And I've spoken with him myself. And uh, yeah, he's he's the real deal. Uh, so this is what we're 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 about eighty percent of the way to a hundred thousand uh, dollars as a result, maybe eighty five percent as a result of today's uh, conference. In the second hour, we'll have more time to talk about the actual uh, conference. Uh, that is, we're right in the middle of uh, today. We heard from David Ray Griffin uh, along on the same platform as. Niels Harrett. For those of you who know the 9-11 Truth Movement, you know these names and that they have never been on the same platform together. Altogether, uh, Stephen Jones as well, uh, and myself, a very, very exciting and stimulating uh, conversation today. We want you to hear that free. Well, hello. Um, yes. Hi, Matt. Hi, Great Bob. to hear from you. I wanted with, with Skype. <laughs> Wanted to also give you an opportunity, Matt. I've, I've introduced your story to people, what we're trying to accomplish. And uh, before we get to the top of the hour, would you just say uh, hi to people and, and, and tell them uh, uh, a real brief background, and we'll go into more depth in the, in the next hour uh, about your, your story and what you're trying to accomplish with the new inquest. Yeah, um, my name's Matt Campbell. My um, brother died on 9-11. And, um, I, I've been questioning um, certain elements of the official narrative going back to sort of as early as sort of November 2001. And um, I've always felt um, like a, a lot of family members that we've not really had our, our day in court. And that's not to, to say that every aspect of the official narrative is wrong. It's just, you know, when someone gets murdered, we've always, you know, through watching TV, reading books, etc., expect there to be some sort of a, a attempt at justice and getting to the truth of, of things. And we've just never had that opportunity. Um, when I um, had the inquest, my brother had an inquest uh, in 2013. Um, this is on the UK side. You know, that was um, very much just sort of rubber stamping um, what the uh, American uh, authorities had said. And... Um, and yeah, I want to challenge that. And it's been a long journey um, to get to this point where I feel that there's a, a very good chance that, you know, some aspects of that official narrative are going to get challenged. And, you know, they've got to be able to stand up in court. Um, and it's both, both sides. We've got lots of evidence that says it's different to the official narrative, but actually there's, there's a shocking amount of, or 
an absence of evidence um, from the authorities' side. And again, this is potentially one vehicle um, through the court system to force um, the authorities' hand to actually, you know, show more about what happened um, that day. So I'm, I'm very, very hopeful. And um, you know, my brother would probably think it a bit crazy that I've become this sort of um, activist and, and truth seeker. Um, and yeah, I just, I, I'm doing it, I guess, um, for selfish reasons. Um, you know, I, I won't let this, um, lie. I've got to carry on seeing this through. Um, and you know, I'd, I'd like to think that if it happened to me, um, you know, someone would be fighting my corner, um, to get to the truth. So that's where I'm at at the moment. Um, just excited that, you know, we're, we've got, as far as we've got um, in, in trying to reopen my brother's inquest. Matt, we're all in your corner. This is Barbara. And uh, because there was an echo, Richard, um, when you were giving the website for donations to Matt's Brothers Legal Fund, could you repeat that, please? Indeed. It's AE for Architects and Engineers 911truth.org. So that's AE911 truth.org thank you okay well <laughs> we still have some time here mick would you like to get a few words in sure i appreciate the chance and hi to matt and hi to richard um the first thing i want to say is that the lawyers committee is supportive of uh, both architects and engineers and matt and if we have evidence at our disposal that could be helpful in Matt's effort to get the new inquest, uh, you know, don't hesitate to contact us and we'll do what we can to, to be supportive in that effort. So let me uh, first do a clarification regarding our, pardon my voice, new anthrax petition. It is going to Congress. Uh, we're doing some quality control fine tuning on it at the moment, but it's likely to go out uh, tomorrow, if not Monday. And the purpose, as David mentioned, is to request an independent reinvestigation, uh, first by Congress, possibly by an independent commission. Um, so uh, Barbara had indicated that in addition to our conclusions that, that Dr. Ivins was scapegoated, which is, I think, a fair assessment of our petition, um, and I don't remember Barbara's exact words, but it may have left the impression that we've drawn some conclusions about who the actual perpetrators are, uh, we haven't gone quite that far, but we have made clear what the evidence is about why the FBI was wrong at best in eliminating two particular suspect uh, sources. I would call them suspects, but suspect sources of the attack anthrax. One is a military lab, the other is a military contractor lab. And so they were improperly eliminated from the suspects list, which is a big focus of our, our petition. So um, we do, uh, we can explain, and I don't want to interfere with your discussion with Matt and Richard, but we can explain when it's appropriate in the show the details of, our, of what our investigation has come up with evidence-wise on the anthrax issue and why the FBI was at best uh, completely wrong in pointing to Ivan's and eliminating this military lab and contractor lab as the potential source of the attack anthrax. So. Um, I won't try to force that into the next 60 seconds, 
But let me add a personal note in that 60 seconds about Dr. David Ray Griffin. He and, and Kevin Ryan, who's a chemist and a whistleblower, uh, and a friend of mine were the two people most instrumental in motivating me to get involved in investigating 9-11. And I wouldn't be doing the work with the Lawyers Committee if it weren't for David Ray Griffin's work. So I appreciate his kind words about our work, but he is, um, you know, the mo motivating force behind a lot of what I and others are doing in the 9-11 in the mm -hmm. truth effort. Mick, uh, forgive me, but we're at the top of the hour. If we could come back to you after break. Richard C. Hoagland here. I'd like you to support The Other Side of Midnight by subscribing to Club 19.5 and thereby joining our unique and growing radio community. Tune in to listen to our fascinating guests, pioneers on the out-there edge of science and thought, and gain access to exclusive member benefits. To do this, just visit our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the navigator bar or in the left-hand column. Membership costs $19.95 per month. That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed and you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the 19 point archives if you prefer. To enhance your listener experience, a new The Other Side of Midnight podcast is being added to all show pages, which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of Radio with Pictures thus easily accessing the corresponding show. Plus, you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go. I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast to provide you with the most interesting conversation available, talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought, and if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to Club 19.5 as well, because we need all of you. And when I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Hoagland, over and out. There must be some kind of way out of here. Better jump up to the sea. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Businessman, there, drink my wine. Come and dig my earth. None will ever own the mine. Nobody of it is worth. <laughs> 
to get excited. The baby kind of There are many here among us who feel the life but a joke. But you and now we've been through that. And this is not our fate. So let us start talking about it now. The hour's getting later. Welcome back to the other side of midnight. Tim Zia standing in for Richard C. Hoagland, along with Timothy Saunders and Annette Driscoll. We are the hosts of the other side of the news. Our guests tonight are Mick Harrison, Dave Meiswinkle, Richard Gage, Barbara Honiger, and Matt Campbell. And the show is called 911 Justice Matters. Mick, you were just making a point before we had to go to break. Would you like to pick up? Thank you. Um, I just wanted to give sort of the big picture for why the Lawyers Committee is looking at the anthrax attack issue. Uh, Some people may not realize that these attacks, of course, happened on the heels of the 9-11 attacks. Uh, The anthrax letters started to be mailed out, I think, about a week after September 11th, and they proceeded through October uh, of 2001, and uh, from you know, our our looking at the 9/11 issue, the lawyers committee is looking at it, it. It appears that one of the primary motivations for the attacks, including the destruction of the trade center towers and Building Seven by use of explosives, was to create such fear in the United States population that uh, the U.S. would be willing to support a war against Iraq. Uh, military action in Afghanistan and and the ongoing war on terror that we've seen. And the anthrax attacks came as basically a second phase shortly on the, on the heels of 9-11. And and the, the motivation appears to be the same, which is to motivate the public to support the attack on Iraq. A lot of folks may not remember that in the early days of the anthrax attacks, the government, certain government officials were trying to blame the anthrax attacks on Iraq. That turned out to be, of course, totally false and unfounded, but it's a clue as to what the motivation was behind those attacks. So I'll leave that there. And then at the appropriate point, I can give you some more details on the sort of whodunit part of our investigation about how we're uh, sort of dissecting the FBI's investigation and what we found suspicious about it, but I, I don't want to prevent you from talking with Matt Campbell while he's available and Richard. So let me pause there and I'll defer uh, as to how you wish to proceed. Okay. 
Thanks um, so much, Nick. And we've been working with the Lawyers Committee uh, for 9-11 Inquiry for many years, and they have been so helpful to us, all of you here, and, and the rest of your team has just been incredible. Uh, we have uh, two joint lawsuits, at least, with you. Uh, the FBI lawsuit, which we'll talk about later, or maybe you mentioned it already, and then the uh, uh, the petition for a special grand jury, 60 exhibits of the evidence of AE 9-11 truth. This is the evidence we're going to bring to the high court uh, and um, uh, in the UK uh, to get a new inquest into the uh, death of Jeff Campbell, who is Matt's brother. And Matt is going to share his story, but I want to set it up for everybody so that they know why we need a new inquest here. The Twin Towers, uh, we're told, were brought down uh, with uh, the explosion of jet fuel and uh, the uh, after burning for an hour or an hour and a half and then the steel uh, weakened, and the top uh, portion of the buildings drove the rest of the towers down to the ground uh, and then destroyed it themselves. Uh, and this is like a Mack truck running into a Volkswagen saying that the Volkswagen destroyed the Mack truck. You know, it just doesn't work like that. It's, it's a, a, an equal and opposite destructive force. And also none of the videos or photos show an upper portion of the building uh, uh, dr driving the rest of the building down to the ground. It's been destroyed, the upper part, three seconds. And that's consistent with the 156 uh, oral uh, histories of first responders who are, are on record as talking about uh, sounds of explosions, um, seeing flashes of light before the towers ever came down. And as Barb uh, points out, before the airplanes even hit the towers, uh, there's evidence of explosions, particularly in the seismic evidence uh, that was picked up by the, uh, the, uh, the, the seismic uh, uh, detection unit um, got some background noise, so, so you might want to go on mute if, if you're not talking. Um, and then the, um, uh, and, and I'll just try to summarize this evidence real quick. We're talking about explosions of squibs 20, 40, 60 stories down below what we're told is a gravitational collapse. Uh, these, these are incredible explosions occurring all over the building uh, that are easily seen in the videos that have no uh, a cause in the actual uh, official narrative of this building's collapse. And we're, we're talking about then uh, a four-ton and eight-ton structural steel sections ejected laterally out of the towers at 80 miles an hour, landing 600 feet in every direction, well outside the footprint of these buildings. There's only a two-story pile down at the bottom of twisted steel. Uh, the steel is outside the footprint. Now, this is a third of the weight of the building. Uh, uh, we're talking uh, 100,000 tons of structural steel in each of these buildings. That's not available to crush the building because they're all found outside in a 1,400-foot diameter about each building. Uh, and, and then 
also people say, well, maybe the concrete crushed the building. Well, the concrete is, is seen not at the base of the tower in pancakes like you might expect, but pulverized in midair uh, before it ever gets to the ground We're, and spread over a three square mile area across lower Manhattan in, in, in three inch thick blanket. And, and so it's not available either to crush the building. So altogether, the steel and the concrete, it's, that's two thirds the weight of the building. That's gone. What was, what was, uh, what was happening to, to all of that? We're talking about high energy explosives here. That's what's revealed in this evidence. But there is also extremely high temperatures uh, that are, cannot be accounted for by the uh, a jet fuel or by the fires. Uh, it, 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 we have molten iron pouring out of the South Tower minutes prior to its collapse. We have molten iron droplets amounting to up to four tons in all the World Trade Center dust. And up to 6% uh, of, the, of the dust samples are molten iron droplets. Where do they come from? Well, the USGS, the U.S. Geological Survey, uh, defines and documents those, as does R.J. Lee Group and Environmental Concerns. They say they're formed during the event, not before by the welders, not after by the iron workers. So, uh, well, where, do we, where are we getting four tons of molten iron? We haven't used molten iron in our skyscrapers for 100 years. Well, this is the byproduct of thermite, an incendiary used by the military to cut through steel like a hot knife through butter. There it is, the evidence of molten iron in the dust samples. They don't even speculate where, they might come, where it might come from. Uh, and this doesn't speculate. Uh, and and you, the U.S. Geological Survey doesn't speculate. But also found in the World Trade Center dust is something that answers that question. A team of eight scientists led by Niels Harris in Copenhagen and Stephen Jones, uh, who both of whom were on our extraordinary conference today, which, by the way, you can watch that uh, video about all this evidence uh, in, uh, at our website also, which is AE. 911 truth slash justice rising. So we have the evidence uh, in all the World Trade Center dust samples documented by this team of scientists of nanothermite, a very special form of thermite uh, that is uh, uh, found in the form of red-gray chips, red on one side, gray on the other. They're fluid applied uh, so they, because of the dual layer. They are attracted to a magnet, so they have a high iron content. They go, wow, this is not paint. Let's look into this, right? What do they find? They find uh, uh, with a nuclear microscope 50,000 times in, into these little sixteenth uh, of an inch long chips, they find uh, iron oxide powder and aluminum platelets that is the Or the nitrate of a human hair. This is nanoparticle, nanotech. This is extremely important. This is these are the ingredients of thermite, iron oxide, and aluminum powder, uh, and mixed in with an organic bed of oxygen, silica, carbon. So this is amazing. Uh, find they they put it in a heater, a differential scanning calorimeter, and it ignites, producing what? Uh, uh, molten iron droplets. Oh my God. Well, I mean. So we know where those molten iron droplets came from. They came from those nanothermite chips. 
So you see, this is a self, uh, uh, a internally consistent, self-corroborating set of repeatable experimental data that could put a lot of people away, the real perpetrators of 9-11, because this stuff is not made in a cave in Afghanistan. This is made only in the most advanced, sophisticated Defense Department laboratories. May I ask one question before we go too far on this? How much has anybody calculated how much of this thermite is required to actually demolish these buildings? If you if you if you take away the the you know the actual act itself, theoretically, has anybody calculated how much, how many tons, how many meter cubed, whatever it is, to actually bring those buildings down? Here's by extrapolation. There's about four tons of this material, which is unignited nanothermite, and there's okay. about five of the uh, residue, uh, uh, which is ignited uh, thermite. Uh, so, how much would it have taken? A lot more than both of those put together. So, we're talking about dozens of tons of this material that it would okay. have taken. And and in terms of description what form does it come in in its natural state before it, it's used to cut through uh, uh, the metal structure is, is it a is it a powder is it a is it a liquid is, is it a, a solid compound it appears to be a liquid because it's dual layer we do know mm-hmm. through the work of kevin ryan his research that there were fireproofing upgrades going on in each of the towers uh, interestingly enough, uh, about five floors below and five floors above the point of jet plane impacts in each tower. And these towers are different uh, point of impacts, uh, 15 stories down in the north tower and 30 stories down in the south tower. So th- this, this, this has to be looked at, has to be investigated. And the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry has uh, assisted us in submitting this in the lawsuit against the FBI. We'll talk about that and the uh, attorney general's petition. And now in the UK, and uh, that's why Matt's here. Now, or at least you have, this is a four hour presentation that I have on this subject. So you, but you have a, a sense of the beginning of what all the, some of the questions are here and, and and uh, why Matt is so fierce about getting to the truth of his brother's death, and, and, and not just for his brother, but for all the 9-11 uh, victims and their families. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely huge issue. So mm-hmm. I wanted you to give uh, Matt a chance to uh, share more of his uh, story. Yeah, so um, I, like I said, started to question stuff back in... Um, November 2001 and I was actually just while you were um, speaking there Richard um, listening to you talk about um, you know the evidence uh, for the use of explosives and I was trying to think back to when I actually first started to think um, that something wasn't right with um, the way that the towers came down and and I think and it's it's kind of sad my own personal um, journey over the last 19 years I think it probably started in 2003 I didn't really know um, exactly how the towers came down or um, anything like that, but I, I do know that that was the start of my um, kind of depression for about 10 years. Um, you know, dealing with um, the aftermath of my brother's death, but, but then you know, knowing that there's something very wrong with not only aspects of the official narrative, 
um, surrounding his death, but um, just starting to think that something wasn't right um, with the way that the towers came came down. Um, and and so yeah, it was a, it was a long um, it's been a long time. Um, my brother's remains were identified um, by DNA in 2002, 2004, 2008, and um, in May 2013. And I'll come to that significance of, of that in a bit. But um, you know, so this this hasn't really stopped um, for us as a family. Um, you know, only two or three percent of my brother's been been found, um, mainly bone fragments. And um, the remains in 2008 um, were, you know, part of his head, and um, yeah, just you know, stuff that was very hard for us to deal with as a family. Um, and both myself and my mother have, you know, um, held and looked at uh, Jeff's remains that were, were repatriated back to the UK. Um, and um, yeah, so. After a long time in the UK, um, we had something called an inquest. Now, uh, an inquest in the UK um, has to be held by law if someone has died um, in suspicious circumstances, obviously like a, a murder. But even if it's overseas, um, if the remains are repatriated back to the UK, um, it triggers an inquest. And so my brother um, had an inquest. It was a joint one along with nine other um, British victims. Um, there were 67 British victims that died on uh, 9-11. And so 10, 10 people had an inquest in the UK. And um, this was held in January 2013. It was, a, it was a long delay. They adjourned it. And in theory, what they're doing is waiting to, to get more evidence or, or more remains. But for whatever reason, they decided in... Uh, January 2013 to, to have the, um, the inquest. Now, myself and my mum didn't um, attend. Um, my, my dad and brother, um, well, my brother wasn't here, he was, he was living in Thailand at the time. But um, we didn't attend, and um, I think only two family members actually attended the inquest. And, and by this point, I, I was in the wrong, in sort of a bad place, the wrong sort of mindset today. Um, I probably would have ended up just getting angry and, and shouting and stuff. And anyway, I decided not to go. But um, oddly enough, it was about a month later, I, I met Tony Rook. I don't know if anyone knows about Tony Rook, but he made the film uh, Incontrovertible, which is a great film to, to watch uh, about 9-11. And um, I basically sort of came out, I guess, for the first time uh, in public um, you know, saying that I was a family member and, and um, you know, I didn't believe a, a lot of the official narrative and, um, in particular the way that my brother had been um, killed and um, and so those remains that were found in about five months later in um, May 2013 and then subsequently just you know getting more involved in a public facing way um, with 9 level police. Um, and then meeting Richard, and I've done a fair few talks with him, um, both in the States and in um, the UK. Um, I, you know, back of my head, it was like, well, there is a mechanism in the UK to actually enable um, family members to reopen an in 
inquest into their loved one if they're not happy with, um, you know, the, the inquest that was held or the inquiry that was held. And, um, and so, yeah, before I go into more, I mean, that, that's basically, um, it was the starting point for me was around just sort of late 2013, 2014. Um, and I guess getting a hand, a better handle on a lot of the evidence that was there. I mean, I, I hadn't really been focused on I mean, certain things like Building 7, um, although I was aware of it in, I don't know if it was 2006 probably. Um, it, it never held that much interest for me, and purely because it wasn't the building that my brother was in. Um, but uh, yeah, I've never sort of let the idea of, of reopening my brother's inquest um, die. And um, I'm just really pleased that we've got to this stage with the help of people who have um, donated, because it's, it's not uh, a cheap thing to do uh, to engage a, a top barrister in the UK um, to uh, petition the Attorney General um to try and reopen my brother's inquest um so yeah that's where i'm at at the moment uh, we can go into more details in a bit um richard matt could i ask a quick question it's barbara yeah 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 if my understanding is correct and and either of you correct me if it is incorrect my understanding is that at least one of the main goals if not the main goal legally is that you're trying to get an official change in the cause of death of your brother is that correct yes um an inquest is, is really limited to uh, a, a scope of who when where and and how to you know, basically how did um, the deceased die and so um at the moment they're basically saying uh, there's a very generic um thing put on most people's death certificates which was blunt trauma in the us which got translated to multiple injuries in the UK. Um, but, you know, that's the narrative that the coroner um, put around the inquest basically said that this was due to uh, the plane crashing into um, the North Tower, which, um, you know, the fires, etc., subsequently caused its collapse. So very specifically, um, that's what I'm challenging. And we're, we're asserting that it, it wasn't that, it was um, explosives that either directly or indirectly um, killed my brother, directly, obviously, before the tower. Okay, so one follow-up question would be, I think mm. you mentioned who. Um, is it your intent to focus only on the changing the cause of death, or also are you going to be presenting evidences to potential perpetrators? No, the, sorry, the who um, refers to the, the actual deceased, so that would be my brother. Oh, I understand. So it, it, All right. Yes. Um, yeah, so it's not it, 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 the scope is very narrow, which you know for some people listening and certainly myself, it is quite frustrating that it's narrow. But actually, it's 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 brilliant that it's narrow because there's so much evidence to challenge the cause of death. Um, and you know, I said the mechanism that exists in the UK is, is it's tailor made for what we're trying to do here. So in in some respects, it's, it's frustrating. There's lots of aspects of the official narrative I would like to see. Um, challenged and you know, the authorities that hands forced to, to produce evidence um, but it, it is actually quite useful to us that it is so narrow and scope and it allows us to very specifically challenge um, the cause of death and because we have so much evidence that, that points towards um, the use of explosives um, it, it, you know, for me it's a good thing um, where, where it goes afterwards you know, should this actually get in, into court in, 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 a, in a way in which the verdict has changed, 
I mean, that will have massive ramifications, um, not just in the UK, but obviously worldwide, um, if, if the uh, cause of death is changed to um, massive exposures. Exactly. And it's so important. And because some of the listeners to this show, which goes around the world, uh, may not have been uh, listening yet when we mentioned that you are raising funds. You've got about $20,000 left to go and a short time to raise it in order to file for the inquest with your UK attorney, who's a great attorney. And uh, if uh, maybe Richard could mention again where people and how they can donate to your legal defense fund to reopen this inquest for your brother. Yes, indeed. Um, the, the the page that describes all of this, and there's a three-page on that webpage, uh, at ae911truth.org, there's an opportunity to learn more about the case, which is absolutely fascinating, this, this new uh, inquest opportunity, and more about uh, Matt Campbell's family and their, their quest to seek uh, uh, justice here for their son uh, and brothers, Jeff. Um, the, the opportunity here is, oh, oh I was going to say that there's a three page, uh, report or, 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 summary of the case, which is, which is very interesting. All that we have to do is prove to the attorney general that a new inquest might yield a different result. And how can it not? the evidence that I've only scratched the surface of here is overwhelming and irrefutable for controlled demolition of these towers. And so he, she actually, her name is Suella uh, in that position right now, uh, an MP in, in parliament in the UK is um, basically has no choice, but to recommend to the high court that a new inquest be provided. Or she's committing fraud, uh, which, you know, some corrupt uh, uh, judicial uh, uh, personnel uh, can do. That's, that's part of the system. Uh, but uh, in this case, it would be so obvious and so embarrassing for them that they can't. Matt, do you want to comment on, on, on uh, the points that I made here, too? I want to make sure I'm right on target. Yeah, I mean... Uh- the mechanism, um, which I said is, is it is available um, to family members and, and other people actually to um, petition the Attorney General, um, as Richard said, is, is actually a, a member of Parliament, um, and you know supposed to be completely neutral um, and only you know be considering the law. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just to, to probably um, correct you slightly, Richard. I mean, the the, the Attorney General doesn't even need to, to be convinced that there's a slight chance of changing the verdict. You can still actually reopen uh, an inquest, just the fact that there wasn't sufficient inquiry and there is new evidence. It doesn't necessarily need to, to be able to change the verdict. So, I mean, this is kind of important to me because um, there's, a, there's a, a, an act of the Coroner's Act, sorry, there's a, a part of the Coroner's Act um, that is very specific um, under the conditions as to why um, a, a new inquest can be held. And the, the two areas that we're focusing on is 
new evidence and um, a lack of uh, inquiry um, as well. And the actual kind of bar or the hurdle that you have to get over in order to convince the Attorney General um, to open the inquest is actually surprisingly quite quite low. So we, we are so far above what's required to um, reopen my brother's inquest. Um, I mean, one of the things that's been quite interesting for me um, in dealing with the barrister, who's, who's extremely um, good, by the way, he's, he's been involved in some very interesting cases in the UK. Matt? He's involved in a... Hello? Uh, I'm sorry, we're yeah. going to break right now. If you could just ah, hold okay. that thought, we'll come right back sure. to it. You're on the other sure. side of midnight. There's something happening here What it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware Think it's time we stop, children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down Battle lines being drawn and Nobody's right If everybody's wrong Young people speak in their minds Are getting so much resistance From behind Every time we stop Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and nonlinearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. What a field day for the heat. A thousand people in the street. Singing songs and they carry inside. Mostly say, hooray for our side. It's time we stop. Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down. Strikes deep into your life, it will creep. 
starts when you're always afraid. Step out of line, the man come and take you away, away. We better stop, hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going, we better stop, hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going, we better stop, now, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going, we better stop, And welcome back to the other side of midnight. Our guests tonight are the Lawyers Committee for 911 Inquiry, along with Matt Campbell. And hosting tonight is the team from the other side of the news. That would be Timothy Saunders, Annette Driscoll, and myself, Kinsia. So Matt, would you like to continue, please? Yeah, I was, I was just saying about the, the barrister who's um, representing me or, or preparing the case, I should say. Um, he's he's an interesting guy. He's done a lot of. Um, he's been involved in a lot of big cases, and he's. I think next month he's um, involved in representing some of the victims of the paedophile Lord Janna. Um, you know that that's you know I guess uh, you know fairly a big deal going against the establishment there, um, but. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to go back to the Attorney General and the, the what he needs to consider when we uh, uh, put the application in, the petition. Um, the most important thing for her to consider is, is basically, is it in the interest of justice to make a new inquest um, either necessary or desirable? Um, and it, for, for me, um, there's... There's two aspects of the new evidence um, that's interesting. There's one, there's all the explosive evidence, um, which, you know, it's, it's substantial. And, you know, that should be um, enough to rate my brother's inquest. But one of the things that actually started to um, give me hope that there would be a, a very good chance of being able to rate my brother's inquest was I was actually being helped by a member of parliament um, ooh, about six years ago when I first started, or five years ago, um, when I was in the process of sort of thinking about the you know, brother's inquest. And he'd had a, um, a couple of conversations with uh, an ex-attorney general called Dominic Grieve. And um, and my question to, um, to the, I guess, the attorney general was <clears throat> just on the basis of my brother's new remains that were found and identified Sorry, identified in May 2013, which is five months after his inquest. You know, is that enough to to trigger a new inquest? Because it's you know it's very strong material new evidence. It's, you know, more of my brother's remains have been identified. He said that you know even on that basis, there's enough to reopen my brother's inquest. And obviously, we want to get all the other evidence of uh, explosives in. But I'm hopeful, uh, well more than hopeful. I'm confident that we are actually going to get the blessing. Um, of the Attorney General and and the mechanism basically is she has to grant her authority or a fiat um, to the High Court the High Court uses the same law that she's used to look at the process which my barristers used to put the whole application together and we, I'm not 100% certain but we're talking like 99.9% of all cases that are pushed from the Attorney General up to the High Court the High Court follows what the Attorney General has recommended. And so it will end up being a new inquest in a, a coroner's court. Um, and so I'm confident that we, like I said, we have 
more than enough evidence, new evidence. We can show that there was a lack of inquiry um, into my uh, events, um, or sorry, precisely my brother's um, cause of death. And then we can actually yeah, get that inquest. authority from the Attorney General. Matt, a new inquest would, uh, would, would just, for us, it would, in the 9-11 Truth Movement, which includes you, uh, it would blow open uh, the opportunities. I mean, here we're outside the U.S. where the censorship is not as great. Um, we're right there uh, in Europe where the 9-11 Truth Movement will seize on this. The, the, the family members throughout Europe uh, and the United States will hear, uh, what? You, you mean uh, these towers were uh, destroyed by a controlled demolition and that's what killed all our loved ones? This is going to create an outcry in, in the in the uh, the 9/11 family, um, the 9/11 families, uh, and they can join in uh, and get an inquest for their loved ones as well, and do this in other countries. I mean, it could blow up on uh, the truth about 9/11. So that's one of the reasons uh, uh, all of us in the 9/11 truth movement are so excited about it, and, and why you know we're we're stretching and and, and taking a risk to support uh, Matt's family. Uh, and, and we're—it's more like eighty-five thousand, uh, Barb, that we've raised, and I'm going to confirm that number tomorrow morning. Um, but uh, we've only got fifteen thousand, fifteen thousand left. Uh, this is the best uh, barrister in in London, in our opinion, and um, very expensive, as I mentioned. Uh, so, uh, but he's solidly behind us. Uh, you actually met Nick Stanage, uh, didn't you, Matt? What was your feeling about him? Um, well, I mean, I've, I first uh, sort of contacted him about four and a half years ago. Like I said, I was, you know, um, when I first um, wanted to reopen my brother's inquest. Um, he's he's very um, very precise in the way that he he, he speaks. Um, he's very very thorough, and you know what what we're basically doing is there's obviously there's the um, evidence side. Um, and you know that obviously needs to be pushed forward, but there's obviously um, a little bit of a, a dance that's done, uh, I guess, with all um, lawyers, and you know how best to um, put forward persuasive arguments to the Attorney General um, that my brother's inquest um, needs to be um, reopened. Um, he's he's very good. Uh, I mean, there's obviously quite a few um, law firms and chambers that you can contact in the UK. Um, and I got down to a short list of sort of two or three. Um, and uh, and Nick, Nick's just been very impressed overall with everything that he's done. And we've been working with him now for um, a good month and a half in, you know, um, in a kind of compressed way, because um, there's a lot of work that, that, um, that needs to be done. Um, but I'm confident that, you know, obviously assuming we raise the, the final amount of money, um, that we'll be able to, he'll be able to um, package everything up and we'll get this petition off as, as soon as we can um, to the Attorney General. And I'd just like to say, I mean, just in terms of my, you know, my confidence, um, you know, in the past, um, people have faced incredible odds um, it, when their loved ones have been murdered, and you think that you can't go against the establishment and, um, and get a different verdict, and, and I'm thinking of something called Bloody Sunday. And without going into the details of the case, just to say that the, the cover-up and the corruption that went on, um, you know, and right at the top, we're talking Prime Minister, the Lord Chief Justice, um, and someone who ended up becoming the head of the British Army, um, and the family still won. 
and managed to overturn um, the, the false um, narratives and um, inquiry and inquests into their loved one's death. So, um, yeah, this guy's expensive, but you need someone who's very specialised um, in the mechanism of inquest. He is actually also an assistant coroner as well as a barrister. He knows firsthand um, the process that actually goes on um, in a coroner's court. So, yeah, he's a good guy, Nick's damage. Um, you can check out his um, profile. I think it's probably on a 911 Truths website. Um, uh, is that right, Richard? Yeah, e911truth.org uh, stands for Architects and Engineers for 911 Truth. ae911truth.org. And so you can learn uh, all kinds of things there. In addition, Matt gave uh, a, a, a detailed um, uh, uh, summary, uh, <laughs> a detailed summary. That's a contradiction. Anyway, a, a detailed outline in, in about uh, 40 minutes of, uh, of how impressive this case uh, is for us and the opportunities for us. That's uh, on the Justice Rising Conference, day one, yesterday, uh, September 11th. So all that's on our website, too. Um, in addition, the rest of the conference uh, is on our website uh, including the request for correction, which we have submitted to NIST, who was tasked by Congress to explain these collapses to the American people. And they failed miserably, committed massive fraud, final reports of theirs. And so in, with federal agencies, we, uh, as um, architects, engineers, and concerned citizens, can submit a request for correction. And we attacked their eight key vulnerable points of fraud and they have written back with very superfluous um, answers uh, th that uh, were egregiously um, uh, avoiding the issues uh, that were raised uh, in these very specific uh, arguments, which was illegal for them to get away with. And, and so we're, they're not going to get away. We are appealing it, and we will have a, a subsequent lawsuit which will bring us back in league with the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, um, uh, working together again, uh, which we just love doing uh, because these are some of the top attorneys uh, around and th the ones who care the most about getting the truth out about 9-11. Uh, so uh, you guys are, um, we're also there at our conference and, and you gave your uh, summary of these cases and, and their statuses, um, that uh, lawsuits that we've we've worked on together, and uh, in in that conference, you also talked about the anthrax and 9/11, uh, which was uh, all together an extraordinary presentation. So I'd encourage people to watch the Lawyers Committee for 9/11 Inquiry uh, on our website as well uh, at that presentation in on Justice at Justice Rising, our online conference. And by the way, it continues tomorrow. Um, we're in the middle of a three-day, almost at the end. We have three more speakers. One is going to be, uh, we open up with Daniela Ganser from Switzerland, 9-11 and the false flags uh, that it has spawned since then and before then, actually, and the, the wars of terror uh, that false flags uh, spawned. And and uh, of course, Afghanistan and Iraq. You know, why are why are we in Iraq? 
Uh, was that for uh, ties to Saddam? No. Uh, was that for weapons of mass destruction? No. Why are we in Afghanistan? Well, it turns out not to be Osama bin Laden either. Uh, and yet that's the longest war in the U.S.'s history ever. So uh, 9-11 truth pulls the rug out from underneath uh, all of this. Uh, so we are... Um, uh, we we just uh, will not stop. We're we're going to go on and on, and we're just so grateful to partner with uh, the lawyers committee also. So I didn't want to hog all the time. So uh, maybe you guys have some more announcements you want to make too. Well, I don't know about announcements, but I just want to say how uh, impressed I am that this case in Europe is going to affect all the other cases like dominoes. Instead of dominoes, it's one case after another going to be very hard for them to cover this up. Well, that's a good point. Um, sorry, this is Mick. I was just saying on the domino theory, if you will, if Matt gets a victory in this inquest and they get a new determination of cause of death, which is related to use of explosives, I don't know why the lawyers committee couldn't introduce that new development in our petition for the grand jury in New York, which is currently in litigation in front of a federal judge there in New York. So it's, uh, it could be a significant development. Yeah. I mean, I, I, um, I hope so. Um, I mean, one of the things that, you know, would be important for me is, uh, and I, I know from speaking to, um, other family members in the UK, um, so I'm in, in the process of, um, trying to get them to either reopen their own loved ones inquest or get them to at least support, um, what I'm trying to do. But, you know, most of the power, um, if you want to call it that, does lie with the family members uh, in terms of, you know, what they can do legally. Um, and, yeah, I mean, if family members, you know, because they obviously a lot of them have heard, you know, bits and pieces, I guess, of what you call the 9-11 conspiracy theories, et cetera. But, um, you know, from my own experience, my own family and, and friends, going into the, the legal process gives it a lot more gravitas and, and they suddenly start listening to, to what you're saying, taking it a lot more seriously. And like I said, I know at least um, three families um, or victim um, family members who aren't happy with the official narrative. Um, and you know, certainly I'm hoping I can get their, their support because I think that that's important. But like, you know, if the verdict is changed, then, yeah, it's massive, um, and I would expect uh, an awful lot of um, family members to just sort of wake up from their slumber and uh, and to do whatever they can do in their own country, um, in particular the states, um, to to use that that um, verdict. This is Annetta, and um, I'd like to talk about that whole the massiveness of this. Uh, you know, when we're when we're looking at this and we're talking about a change of of the cause of death. It's, it's obvious to me that if we change this, it means that everything changes. But even maybe more importantly, as far as the huge picture goes, it's not just that the towers came down by explosives, which blows all, all the narrative away that they've tried to foist off on us, but it also opens up the idea that there was much, much more going on. I mean, last night in the show that we had on the other side of the news, it goes into we went into some detail about exactly all of the different motives and all the different agendas that were occurring uh, 
to take these towers down. It, it goes from wanting to have a war, wanting to cause people to be afraid of the boogeyman that didn't really exist, and and all of these things that happened. And and it's really um, the thing that's, that's that is very very important about this being exposed is we are actually experiencing the exact same pattern again right now with the pandemic. And so we've got. We've got this, you know, wash, rinse, repeat. We've got it going on again. And so this is vitally important that, that this, this case uh, exposes their, their lies and their corruption and their cover-up because it, it's connected to every, all the dots are connecting to each other. And it continues. I mean, they haven't stopped putting the dots on the map. So I just wanted to say that, how important this really is. Right, Annetta, uh, this is Barb. I'd like to just jump in on a comment you just made, which is so true. And um, uh, tomorrow on our Lawyers Committee event, and we do want to really mention that uh, on the uh, Other Side of Midnight homepage or, or page for tonight's show, if you scroll down a little bit to Lawyers Committee items, the very first one is a reminder that tomorrow uh, on Sunday, the Lawyers Committee and the New York City Truth Action Project will be holding an online Zoom conference for three hours. And that, uh, Dave can correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that's from noon to 3 o'clock West Coast time and 3 to 6 p.m. Um, uh, East Coast time. But in any case, it's uh, those details are there. But what I wanted to let you know is that um, uh, Francis Boyle, who is one of the world's experts on bioweapons, and is an attorney, uh, and actually wrote the United States bill that became law uh, that put into force the Bio uh, Warfare Treaty, which uh, ruled out any offensive use of bioweapons, which the anthrax attacks prove the United States almost certainly, or whoever are shown to be the real perpetrators eventually, uh, based upon our work, uh, violated, and were violating up to 9-11, um, what's important is, believe it or not, um, in his presentation tomorrow, Francis Boyle has already told us, and it's in the title of his presentation online, that he is going to argue that if the anthrax attacks had been honestly and properly investigated by the FBI instead of covered up and obfuscated, that we arguably would not be having the coronavirus, Operation Coronavirus now. Yeah, Absolutely. Let me, let me yeah. uh, add something to that, Barbara. You're right. Uh, we're going to have a <clears throat> really a tremendous program tomorrow. Uh, Francis Boyle is one of the uh, the guest speakers, and the title of his uh, his talk is "Bioweapon Moratorium Needed: A Failure to Properly Investigate the Post 9/11 Anthrax Attack Has Led to a COVID Pandemic Fraught with Unseen." And even more dangerous and sinister bioweapons possibilities, smallpox, Ebola, anthrax, superbugs, etc. And after him, there's going to be a little intermission. And then Merle Nass is going to speak. She's an expert on anthrax. She's a medical doctor. And uh, her title is The Anthrax Letters and Coronavirus Avoid Solving the Crimes but Take Advantage of the Possibilities. So in addition to those speakers, Bill Benny was a former NSA. Uh, he's the expert really on surveillance uh, at, at one time. He's going to speak on the 24-7 surveillance state, the new normal since 9-11, 
Graham McQueen's going to speak on attacking Congress with weapons of mass destruction, a decisive moment in the fraudulent war. Uh, Ray McGovern, who was a former CIA, uh, he's a, he used to brief the President of the United States. He's a uh, whistleblower, and he is a, a member of VIPS. That's the Veterans Intelligence uh, 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 for Sanity. Uh, it, it, it was it, Veterans Intelligence for Sanity. And uh, he's all, along with uh, Bill Binney. Uh, they both are members of that. And he's going to talk about pre- and post-intelligence back to basics. Barbara is going to talk about anthrax attacks open back door to 9-11. Uh, Mick is going to talk about none dare call it treason. And uh, uh, Francis, uh, uh, Christopher Joy is going to talk. He's a fire commissioner from New York. He's going to talk about fire department activism and reflection on 9-11 truth. And uh, Bill Jacoby is going to talk about pushing back beyond the courtroom. In other words, the uh, title of, of our program is Recognizing and Pushing Back the 24-7 Police State. And I'm going to talk a little bit about anthrax investigation facts and findings. So you see we have a, a, quite, a, 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 you know, quite a group there. And uh, as Barbara said, Francis Boyle is going to talk about bioweapons and connecting what we're talking about, these anthrax attacks in 2001, possibly with what we're experiencing today with this COVID pandemic. And Merle, I believe, may be talking something similar to Merle Nass. So you have two incredible professionals at some of the highest levels that will be addressing your concerns, Cynthia. Right. Um, uh, Dave, uh, we should let people know that they can watch this for free live, and it will also be a, a video archive, but you can watch it live tomorrow. It is from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, noon to 3 p.m. West Coast time. And you simply go to the Lawyers Committee website, which is lcfor911.org. That's right. Just go onto the website and scroll down, and you'll see a, a button there. You can just write on in. And if you have a telephone, you know, you can't do it with your computer. You can get in through your, your telephone, too. The, the numbers are all there. The, as Barbara said, it's lc4for911.org, and that's tomorrow. 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thanks. Um, I believe Timothy is wanting to actually follow up. Timothy, are you there? I'm here. It's really a question of taking up the point that you were making just now and also Barbara and Dave were then uh, elaborating on. But if we look at the, the precedent that's in history, a lot of these, shall we say, exercises have turned into uh, real events. For example, if we go back to the 9-11 date itself, there was a, an operation on the same day called Vigilant Guardian. And that was a, an exercise to, for I think NORAD was involved, many different agencies and authorities were involved, to actually understand and learn what would happen if an aircraft was hijacked. And uh, strangely enough, if you remember, uh, I think one of the first comments that came from NORAD uh, just after the, the, the World Trade Center was hit, or perhaps the Pentagon was hit, I'm not sure which one, but either way, the first words that came from NORAD was, is this real world or is this, uh, is, is this an exercise? Something along the, those lines. So this exercise turned into reality. Now, I know we have a break coming up, but let's see if we can squeeze this in, at least some of it. So in history, we've seen many other exercises that turned into 
uh, into reality, into a painful reality. So this is uh, well documented by people. Also, one of our guests, Ole Damagard, on the other side of the news. Uh, so moving forward a little bit further, we then have in June of 2001 a um, another exercise called Dark Winter. It may not be the, the official. Uh, name given to it, but it's certainly it's become known as the the Operation Dark Winter, where uh, an exercise was you know, hypothetically carried out uh, to understand how a smallpox um, epidemic would turn into a pandemic, and uh, that was something which was not too far before the anthrax uh, mail shot went out. So, again, is it a direct correlation? Is there a direct um, connection? Well, possibly. So let's bring things on a little bit further. I mean, I'm just looking at the, the, the line of data points between you know, 9-11 and now, and perhaps that go precede this you know, far earlier. But uh, we now come to the current pandemic, and i was just keeping an eye on time. We have last year, there was um, event 201 in which uh, the Bill and Ga uh, Melinda Gates uh, Foundation and the World Economic Forum and, and Johns Hopkins and so on, a lot of other players were there. And they were talking about what would happen if a pandemic occurred and so on and so on. Um, this is, again, another data point that has given rise to what's going on now, in my opinion. But there's also one other very interesting data point, And I'm just going to see if I can squeeze it in before. And that is by a, uh, an organization called GPMB, which is the Global Preparedness uh, Monitoring Board. And this is something which happened in September 2019, so just prior to event 201 in, uh, just prior to 201 in, in October 2019. And in this GPMB, which is actually a, a, a WHO organization, uh, they set out that there would be two uh, further exercises carried out in September or before the end of September in 2020. Now, I think that we're completely out of time right now, so I'd like to come back after the break and read a passage from that document, because I think it's quite alarming. That's great. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Talk radio with pictures on demand. 
liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. Midnight. Our show tonight is called 911 Justice Matters, and we're in conversation with the Lawyers Committee and Matt Campbell, who is from the UK. And this is a show that's just one revelation after another. As I listen to each guest with their uh, sharing of information, it's I don't know how it could ever have been missed. It's so the amount of data is overwhelming. So I'd like to turn this conversation back to Timothy, who is making a point, and our co-host from the other side of the news, Timothy Saunders. Timothy? Thank you, Kintia. So just trying to lay out a few data points, and then hopefully we'll all have this aha moment that I can see. If I turn to this document, which is entitled uh, the GPMB, which is the Global Preparedness Monitoring Board. And this is uh, set up by the World Health Organization and other uh, cheerful individuals. If we go in the executive summary, and on page 10, you're halfway down the page, and there are a number of aims and goals set out. And the one I find particularly interesting is the United Nations, including WHO, conducts at least two system-wide training and simulation exercises, including one for covering the deliberate release of a lethal respiratory pathogen. Now, this, in context, is a goal set out by the WHO uh, by September 2020. Now, when I listen to... And, and obviously taken part in, in the show we did last night. And I listened to the comments again uh, by Dave and, and Barbara earlier and Anessa. Then clearly, if this really is uh, another exercise or two exercises that are going to be set up, um, let's say before the end of September, and then we have what bullets do we have to put in this? I mean, what we're talking about is this uh, biowarfare, even though the, the Geneva Convention prevented it in uh, 1925 and then Barbara was saying earlier how 
um, in, in the bio warfare um, treaty was preventing that. I think it was in the 1970s. But still, it seems that this this element is alive and well, if only in simulation. And I say simulation, but when we start looking at this anthrax case, then the bullets will exist. I mean, is it just me that can see this connection, or or, or uh, is anybody else smelling this coffee? No, yes, I- Jim. Let me answer that really briefly because it's been the actually the focus of my entire work for the last 11 years on the anthrax attacks, believe it or not. And um, if you go to Radio with Pictures, which I know you haven't had a chance to do yet, scroll down to my items, you will see um, a few down, maybe two down. Um, There is a link to my recent interview uh, with um, Andy Steele uh, on a radio program called um, 9-11 Freefall. But what's important there, when you open that link, Scroll down, and there's a link for my article called The Scarlet A, Links of Anthrax to the Day of 9-11 Itself. And that article goes into the critical fact that uh, before 9-11 happened, at least a day before, if not two, personnel were already from FEMA, from the military, uh, in New York City, preparing for an anthrax scenario, so-called exercise called Tripod 2. And the uh, entire emergency operations center uh, 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 capabilities of the um, Giuliani's operations center in World Trade Center 7 were miraculously and conveniently moved to the pier where they had already set up for that exercise. And that pier for the so-called anthrax scenario exercise became the command center for Giuliani and New York City's entire response to the actual attack. So you know know about this apparently, but it's all in my article. Be sure and read it. You, well, you know, Timothy, I, I, I was going to just comment. I, I'm I'm getting that what you're at asking is a much bigger context than 9/11. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Oh yes, it is. Yeah, that that uh, 9/11 is 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 probably understood best within that context. Now, some years ago, I think it was in the Reagan administration, there was a report called the Report from Iron Mountain. And I think what they were trying to do is figure out what would basically unite the world in a way to uh, be able to control the people, the population. And I believe that it was decided that the best thing to do that at that time, uh, because I think they discussed, or at least there was discussion, uh, of, of a threat from outer space, but it would be uh, war. A war could, somehow could unite people or unite countries. But it, it, but as we've seen with the globalists, uh, it seems like uh, if, if you look at this as an attack on, on nation states and on people, that, uh, that this uh, pandemic, that disease, is, is really the, uh, the way to control people. It, through this, uh, as what, what we've seen, from this, whatever this COVID is, it's not smallpox, it's not anthrax, it's not a super bug. It's something that most people, if they get it, they live through it. Uh, it doesn't seem to affect children, and it seems to affect people that already have a precondition or, 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 or elderly anyway. So the statistics are 
totally skewed pro- improperly. They're kept improperly. There seems to be incentives to, uh, to basically for the hospitals to lie or to put people in there. They get extra money. And there's been lots of doctors that have been come to the forefront, uh, thankfully. And yet you see the uh, major media not cover them and you see them getting censored and taken down when all the alternative media has tried to get the word out. You mentioned the World Health Organization, the United Nations. The United Nations was set up by very wealthy people. In fact, the delegation in the United States was led by Nicholas, by, uh, by uh, uh, Nelson Rockefeller. And the land that the uh, United Nations is built on in New York City used to be a stockyard or a slaughter yard, and that's do- donated by the Rockefeller families. Uh, you, if you go back to the League of Nations back after World War I, this same group is uh, of, of super uh, influential and wealthy uh, uh, magnets. They tried to get it through the League of Nations, and that fell apart. People were more vigilant then. They didn't want to give up their freedoms to these globalists, these bureaucrats, where there no, was no elections, no democracy, people appointed by rich people, and, and, and people totally lost control. They do is they, they practice what they sort of a, a Fabianism. And as we talked about, I think somebody yesterday mentioned the, the, the frog and the, and the boiling, you know, boil the frog slowly, 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 slowly. And all of a sudden he's boiled. It doesn't know it. It's slowly. So where it's taken an eagle, a great eagle like the United States, and overnight just pluck one feather every night, one feather, and all of a sudden the eagle can't fly anymore. What they're trying to do is to stable nation states throughout the world. The United States has the strongest nation state in the sense that it has a constitution that that people could live or die for. And uh, it's totally being shredded right now by everything they do, whether it be uh, since 9-11, with the surveillance state, with uh, taking all of your, uh, your information, your privacy, through uh, uh, seizing or harvesting your, your text message and your cell phone communication, your web searches and your emails, totally illegal. That's what they do. It's a giant elephant. And now they're doing it even worse in a sense with – not even worse. It's just, it's just a compounded with this COVID where all of a sudden you're restrictioned to be, uh, be able to walk or to talk or, or go anywhere. It seems like uh, people can't do what they used to do. The, the, uh, inhibition or the restrictions on travel, the restrictions on, on uh, gathering, the restrictions on uh, criticizing, because if you criticize, Facebook takes you down, YouTube takes you down. You're just totally attacked because you don't meet the company's standards and who sets them. The globalists set them. Gates is nothing but a front for them. Now, I'm speaking for myself, not for the Lawyers Committee. Anything I say here, we haven't taken a position on. But I've looked at it over the years, and I have a good sense of what's happening. So I think your concerns are totally legitimate. They do these exercises, and these exercises are meant to eventually uh, do something, uh, you know, very much so that can control people. My concern is that the COVID turns into, and as I mentioned before, something like a smallpox or something like that. If they have these bioweapons, if they have the bioweapons, which I believe they do, uh, why wouldn't they? They're the most powerful. They have the nuclear arsenals. Why wouldn't they have arsenals of bioweapons too? And if a bioweapon can control people effectively, and this might be the exercise, how much can we get away with this? We'll use a simple one like a COVID and press them. When somebody like Fauci says, prepare for round two, he knows something. He knows what's coming. 
He's, he's, he's giving you a suggestion. There's almost something in, in, in esoteric or occult lore that there's an obligation on their part to give you a warning because they figure that if they tell you what they're, what they're going to do, and, and, and then you have to give them consent because you haven't objected to that. So everybody should say, I object to this, these conditions. I object to you stealing our freedom. I object to your lies. And uh, eventually, maybe there will be, because what happens, it seems like COVID, it, it brings a lot more people into the, into the fray, in a sense. When I see these doctors getting uh, alarmed, it's almost like years ago when architects and engineers got involved. Architects and engineers were not leading the, the, the uh, you know, the razor's edge as far as change, but they are, uh, you know, they have, they are. Uh, as regards Richard Gage and what, what they're doing there uh, to challenge these establishment. What the Lawyers Committee doing now is challenging the establishment. Now you have doctors coming forward and, and charging the establishment. What is the establishment? Where does it go? Take it all the way back. It goes back to international powers. And that's why I started this program with, with the thing from Ephesians 6, 12, because I'm not sure exactly what's behind those powers. If they're just demented human beings or there's something even more sinister, all right? But there's a great evil that's befalling us, and it goes towards the transhumanism that they want to do. It goes towards taking people's free will. It goes towards creating a, a like a bee, a colony or ant colony where people lose their ability to be individuals. And the hive mentality is just to, to uh, it's the Orwellian dystopian hell, basically, where human beings, all that's beautiful from them, all that's heartfelt from them, all that's in their imaginations and their dreams is stripped away, and the, and the society is, just becomes a gray, black type of society with no love, with no juices in there that are vital. It's, it's, it's really disgusting. So what you're saying there is your, your finger is right on the pulse. That's, I believe that's what they're doing. They want to redefine what you be, it means to be human being. And, uh, and it, it, it's not in an elevated way. It's to create more like a slave society, to dumb it down. And again, I'm, not, I'm speaking as my own self, not as a, a, you know, from the lawyer's committee perspective. But I, I, don't, you know, I could talk along on this, but I'll just cut it off here. Dave, I, I'm very aware that you definitely smell the coffee. So uh, I'd also <laughs> like to offer you uh, a season ticket to join us on the other side of the news anytime you like. <laughs> this is what we've been talking about for, for months. And mm -hmm. some people, a lot of people still don't get it. And uh, yet you've just spelt it out and put it on the table in front of you know, all of us. You know, in the same vein, when you're talking that Richard's having these fires, I mean, anyone who's examining these fires, it's almost like examining what would happen in New York City. These are weird fires, some of them. They, they don't, they, the way they burn, the heat they have, the, you know, it seems you can make an argument that California is a test case for their globalism. Everything. Mm -hmm. California is such a beautiful state. I remember the first time I went there, it was like a dream. You remember that song, Doc, uh, Doc in the Bay by Otis Redding. I just wanted to go there just like and put my feet in, a, in the Pacific Ocean, you know, as a kid, you know, as a college kid. And, and it, it, California offers everything, and they seem to be wanting to destroy everything. Mm -hmm. And it, to me, it's a test case for this 2030 agenda. Yeah. Oh, is that, that absolutely now. I want to point out that tomorrow night we're going to have Dane Wigington on to talk about the California fires and what's going on with our environment. And exactly so, Dave. Right. He, 
Dane Whittington will, will break down exactly why the fires are burning like they are and how this is happening. And, and it is, it, it is uh, like Melbourne, it's very, it's, it's, it has a very parallel existence. The globalists are definitely after California for a multitude of reasons that we don't probably need to get into on this particular show. However, you know, we, we have a, a, we have a tyrant in chief who, who thinks that he's a ruler, not a governor. Um, his name's gruesome. And, and um, you know, we've got, we've got a lot of, of stuff going on here. We've been in lockdown uh, uh, since March 19th. We are almost at six months. We're the first state to go into lockdown and we're still there. I mean, yeah. what's wrong with this picture? You know, statistically we can look at the numbers and there's nothing happening with their stinking fake virus, but we're still all acting like it's, happening or not all of us and some of us definitely are not but people say well you know what can we do what can we do well you guys are doing all kinds of things that are great but on an individual level can we talk about a little bit how people can participate and stand up to the tyranny that's that's happening i think it's to get the facts i mean they're trying to to get the facts and compare them with the the official uh you know narrative is and you'll see that the, uh, the their, their narrative doesn't stand up. They, there's there's no reason to do what they're doing. They're killing the middle class. They, they're housing, you know, they're taking the kids out of education. Uh, they are, are are making us uh, uh, like we're a bunch of cowards in a sense. Uh, they're 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 just uh, plucking our energies. Uh, you know, I guess how do you how do you combat it? I think it's really important to. Um, maybe you know some lawsuits that we could get in involved with it have to do with the freedom of the press. If you if you start with the press and the media, to me that that there are the the biggest culprits here because they don't allow the other narrative, the other side. The alternative does your your program does certainly, but the mainstream is totally co-opted and controlled by them. So I think the more pressure that can be done to uh, bring facts to the forefront and challenge them when they take a, a, a company, not company, but uh, a, a alternative media down to somehow challenge that and start to push back. That's, what we, that's the name of our program. We're going to talk about this tomorrow. That's, that's why it was titled that, recognizing and pushing back the 24-7 police state. And I, a lot of people don't even know it yet, you know, so just to make them aware that, hey, wait a second, there's a, a plan here. You know, mm. you're, be, you're being played. You don't realize that there's a script and, and you're a character in it and, and, and you're being moved around and they have the best psychologists to monitor the situation and to evaluate your psychic. They want to see how you're going to behave and how you're going to act. And based on how you behave and act, that determines what they're going to do next. So if you act like what they say, cold like sheep or something, they'll be more, uh, they, they'll feel more cocky that they can push it a little bit more. If you if you start pushing back, they, they're going to probably push back. They're going to allow you to push them back a little bit. Uh, but I think what's interesting to me at this time, because if, when it first started ha happening, I talked to friends and I said, I don't know if this is an exercise or a real deal. I said, I, I hope it's just an exercise and give us more time <laughs> to organize, you know, in your own way. Uh, I hope it's not the real deal. But uh, people all of a sudden like uh, Fauci, who's, I don't think much of him at all. And, 
and and Gates, I don't think maybe even less than him. Uh, but uh, I think that Gates is just the front man for very powerful and sinister forces. Uh, that's why we know of them. But the fact that they've stepped out now and identified themselves in as such, and there is a, a backlash against them, uh, tells me that there's it, this is very serious because you don't expose your your people unless you're going to start doing the right thing, not the right thing, but carry out your program because you, they lose their credibility over time. Uh, cred, uh, Gates will lose more and more credibility when people find out about his vaccination record in, in Africa. That do, you know, he's not the, uh, the humanitarian that people think he is, at least from what I've heard and, and read. Not. Yeah. No. So, so th- th- in other words, they've over, not overextended themselves, but the more and the longer we can hold them off, it screws their plan up it's a timing mechanism for them and it may be even astrological you don't know these people are all cultists Mm. and they figure things out through the stars in some ways and through energies and through other means so you know you screw their plan up if you uh, you uh oppose them if you don't give them consent if you challenge them and and then then they're off it's like uh, throwing a quarterback off in a football game by uh you know, rushing him a lot and, and hurrying him so he doesn't have the time to set up and, and find his receivers. So you have to, we have to start doing that and, and, and rushing them in a certain way, in a legal way, uh, but uh, putting more pressure on them in different ways. When I see what's happening in New York, and I, I live in New Jersey, I said, geez, these, these governors are, go, are crazy. What, who, where are they taking their marching orders from? I bet you if you did the proper investigation, you'd find out there's a script that they're following. They're all joined in. There's some kind of uh, organization. When I see these, what's going on in Minneapolis, when I see what's going on in Portland, when I see what's going on in Seattle, it's disgusts me in the sense that, and I, listen, I, I'm like, when I grew up, I was like a Kennedy and Martin Luther King Democrat. That's what I felt, and that's, I still feel that way, that way. But the sense of trying to understand what's happening to the country and the sinister per- forces that are behind it and how they're, uh, they're, they're, they're coming from the left, but they're really not, the, the, prog- the progressives aren't there anymore like they used to be. And that, that left party or Democratic Party is not what it used to be. And uh, it's sort of like everything's been redefined, uh, especially the Democrats since NAFTA. I mean, they, they gutted their work, the, you know, the workers here. But uh, Anyway, it, it would be, you know, you have to sit down and try to figure out the strategy of how to deal with them uh, because they are, as, as they, you know, as a dollar billy all seeing eye, <laughs> they, they had that they had a surveillance system. They, they cover all their bases. Uh, they wouldn't be acting now unless they thought they could close the deal. They feel they have the bases covered. A lot of it has to do with the computer. We're all geared to the electronic age. Through the electronics, they can spy on us, all right? They have the ways, they have back doors. They know exactly what we're doing, what we're thinking. They record it. They harvest it. So it's like, oh, man, that's, that's a little disadvantage. You go to and, some of the cities, I'm, I'm sorry, like in, in and, England, you've got the cameras everywhere, right? And right. Dave, it's not, it's not a question of doing what we are thinking. I, I think it is suggesting what to think in, in many, most cases. In most cases, it's amazing how many people believe they have, well, they have the illusion of freedom and freedom of thought, freedom of speech. But at the same time, they're all but that. The amount of choices that we go through in a day are far less than we actually believe. I think the perception is we're free, but the reality is we're not. You're 100% right. And I think that, I mean, a study maybe of, of some of their, like the CIA with the MK Ultra programs and things of that nature, 
you know, that sort of shows you what they can actually do to people, too, and experiments and things of that nature. We know that with bioweapons, that they experimented bioweapons in subways and in the New York City and in San Francisco, they, they experiment bioweapons. Uh, so they use the population to experiment and they, they, they take data down. That's a fact. That, that's not, you know, that's even came out in the, the church hearings in 1975. So uh, we're being played all the time and we don't know it. And you're right. People think they're free. They have, they're free to change the channel on their TV. That's about it. Yeah. And it's all the same stuff on the television. I mean, the, it's like, that's another thing. People say, how can this, how can we possibly have a worldwide conspiracy? Um, <laughs> I've tried to, actually, I'd love to hear your answer on that because I've tried to answer that and I don't think I've been very, very good at it. Do you have an answer to that question? Because it comes up a lot. What was the question? Uh, how could this possibly be? Because it's a, it, how could it possibly be worldwide and everybody's cooperating? And I, I can see it, but I don't explain yeah. it well. Well, yeah. I think I think you can. Well, you, listen, people will take it back thousands of years, but uh, the more recent time you had in 1921, you had the Council on Foreign Relations. You had over in England, RIA, which is the Royal Institute of International Affairs, or Chatham House. They were the elite of the elite. And uh, after World War One, they they uh, got together and they wanted this this call this new world order. And they uh, eventually in the United States, they, earlier than that, they brought it in with the Federal Reserve, which is which is not a public institution. It's a private bank that makes a lot of money and controls the United States. So you you put into uh, effect they wanted to get a League of Nations, and eventually they got a United Nations. You have these like IMF, you have the World Bank, you have these uh, World Health Organization, right? All these bureaucratic things. You have the bu bureaucrats. You had one of the wealthiest guys, I forget his name, Maurice Strong, maybe or something like that. He was a big guy in Brazil where they were doing that big uh, uh, environmental thing, you know? And uh, you had uh, back in the, the 50s, early 50s, you had the Bilderberg or organization started up. The Bilderbergs were, again, elite, wealthy, incredible. You have in England the Council of, of, of 300, I believe. Uh, and uh, you had then in this country the Trilateral Commission, which was Rockefeller and Zidna Brzezinski set it up. So you have these incredible organizations. You have roundtable groups. Cecil Rhodes was a member of that. Unfortunately, the Rothschild family was very big in, in Africa, which is still being pillaged. That's a disgusting thing, right? Years ago, I took a, a trip around the world for six and a half months with a backpack. And uh, I got very sick in some of these countries. You know, I, I was up in Nepal with the high Himalayas and stuff like that and, and uh, in India. And what I saw, though, was there was no sanitation system, even like in India. And the people were lined up outside these drugstores. I went in the drugstore to get some, and they had a big, wait, a, in a big line. And I asked the pharmacist, why is all the people sick? He says, well, it's bronchial or, or intestinal. And bronchial was they smoked these really bad cigarettes. Like, I don't know if they didn't have filters or whatever. And they had a lot of lung irritations. And, and the, the, the uh, digestive was, was, everybody had parasites. You, you, you know, and I was thinking, well, all that money, it goes, why don't they try to raise the standard of living by putting, you know, uh, 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 systems in there for water and clean water and sewerage and, 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 you know, so people could go to the bathroom and a toilet and, and have it, you know, get rid of it in the proper way. But you go to the, the countries, and I remember being in Egypt, the same thing. You can't drink the water, right? You, can, you can't. You're going to get sick as hell if you drink the water. And, uh, you know, all this money goes to somebody's pocket. But what it is, this is what you learn. 
is that they don't want to elevate human beings. They don't want to elevate these countries. What they want to do is rape them, take their minerals and their natural resources, and maybe use them in the cheapest way as labor. But they don't care about people, period. And you look at what, what the state of Africa is, and you can see that. That's so rich and wealthy, and yet they know that. Those people could be living like you know, really well. I like to quote uh, 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 Buckminster Fuller. He said that if, if we arrange things properly, we could all live not like millionaires, but like billionaires. Right? It's a matter of that. It was, it's, what they do is they create scarcity, whereas it could be abundance. Instead of elevating people, they want to de-elevate them. All right? They want them to take them back to the animal stage or robotize them and control them. So how do you, you know, where's the conspiracy start? Again, that, that's a long one. And, you know, we could go, <laughs> I don't want to take the. All right. Hi, sorry to interrupt, but we are at the bottom of the hour, bottom of the hour break time. So you're on the other side of midnight and uh, we're in a very lively discussion Tune in to listen to Richard C. Holdwin and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Search the archives. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Thank <laughs> you. 
Welcome back to the other side of midnight.com. We were just in a lively conversation with uh, Dave. And um, before we continue, I just want to make sure that we are hitting the points that you really want to cover. We're in the last half hour here. Yeah, well, I just like, I think that Nick has a lot more to tell us, and he hasn't had a chance to go into our anthrax petition yet. So, Nick, would you like to share with us some more about the petition? Well, sure, but let me put it in the context of sort of uh, the bigger picture we were just talking about, which is what can people do to deal with the problem we're facing and given its history. And I look at it from a little more pragmatic view and uh, more of a, I guess, a, a legal strategy view. And, you know, the law provides tools for all of us to use. Um, so I encourage people to, you know, become even non-lawyers to become familiar with the law. For example, the Freedom of Information Act is a tool we can use. There is the Administrative Procedures Act, which we are using, where citizens can sue government officials for making taking actions or making decisions that are arbitrary and capricious. Uh, of course, there's the Constitution that Dave is fond of mentioning, which we shouldn't forget. And uh, we can still sue for violations of the Constitution in federal court. And there are some specific laws, one of which Richard mentioned, the Information Quality Act, which where you can hold agencies accountable for basically telling the truth about scientific data. So there's, there's some pragmatic sort of uh, concrete things that you can do with or without a lawyer. And uh, one of the things we're doing that Barbara wants me to elaborate on a bit is this petition to Congress. And we're going to follow it up with a petition to a federal grand jury and a U.S. attorney regarding these anthrax attacks. So I want to tell you about it, but let me put it in the bigger context of our legal action regarding 9-11. We have, as Dave mentioned, a lawsuit against the FBI in federal court in D.C. It's regarding the failure of the FBI to uh, comply with a congressional mandate. A lot of folks don't know about it. 2014, Congress ordered the FBI to assess all the evidence, including new evidence regarding 9-11 that the original commission did not assess. And uh, the FBI did a sort of a whitewash commission and failed to look at the new evidence. So we're suing them on that. And that's sort of a concrete example of one thing we're doing to sort of fight back. We're also suing the U.S. attorney in New York the Southern District of New York regarding our grand jury petition. Uh, as most of you remember, we submitted a petition with the demolition evidence for the use of explosives and bringing down three skyscrapers on 9-11 in New York City at the Trade Center. And it appears that the U.S. Attorney has not relayed our evidence to the grand jury as we petitioned. And so we're suing in federal court in New York to force the U.S. Attorney to give that evidence to a grand jury. And that's another sort of model of action citizens can take. Uh, having a lawyer probably helps with something like that, but it's not technically required. And we have several freedom of information uh, lawsuits going, one of which we appear to be winning. We're waiting on a final decision from the judge, but we had a magistrate judge give us a favorable decision. We're trying to get the data from FEMA and NIST regarding the building performance study of the Trade Center building collapses. And those agencies were hiding key documents 
from us, uh, and we sued, and the magistrate judge has uh, recommended denying the government's motion for summary judgment and granting us discovery in that case, us meaning in this case David Cole, who is the plaintiff, lawyers committee is supporting David. Um, so that is sort of a structure uh, within which I want to tell you about the anthrax petition, which is our sort of our next action up. And that petition is is going to Congress. It's talking about how the FBI basically did a cover-up of the evidence regarding the 2001 anthrax attacks that followed close on the heels of 9-11. And I want to sort of walk you through the big pieces of evidence. We can't give you all the details in the time we have, but it's a bit of a whodunit, sort of a Sherlock Holmes type of thing where you put pieces together. In this case, you know, once you find the pieces, and that's the trick, you have to, you know, sort of scour the documents, the FBI's documents, and some of the reports that have come out, like the uh, the uh, National Academy of Sciences uh, National Research Council did a 2011 report, which was after the FBI closed its anthrax investigation, which is very enlightening. So, short version is this: the FBI did develop and, and use some sort of state-of-the-art at the time DNA testing of samples of anthrax from 20 laboratories, um, 15 in this country, three outside the country, and then two specific labs, uh, Dugway Proving Ground, Army facility, and then Battelle in Ohio, uh, 20 altogether. They collected 1,070 samples of anthrax of a particular strain called Ames, which was used in the attacks on Congress and the media in these uh, 2001 attacks. They at least led the public to believe they analyzed all of those samples using this DNA technology. And they say they found, and it may be true, they found certain um, mutations. They call them morphs. M-O-R-P-H-S, Morse, um, DNA uh, variants, and the attack anthrax, actually in the letters used to send to the two senators and the media in the attacks. And then they went to survey all their samples from these labs to see if they could get a match. So they, they represented to the public that the DNA pattern of these morphs in the attack anthrax was a what they call a fingerprint. It wasn't really a fingerprint, but you know, they overstated the evidence, but they called it a finger fingerprint. And then they said that fingerprint matched the anthrax being held and controlled by Dr. Bruce Ivins, who is the gentleman who has passed away, who was the suspect that our report indicates was scapegoated um, by the FBI. Now, the problem with the FBI's conclusion that the fingerprint, the DNA fingerprint matched Ivins anthrax and only Ivins anthrax was, first of all, it wasn't really Ivins anthrax. It was a collection that he used for his testing of vaccines, but the evidence we have, including testimony from folks who worked with him, indicate that the FBI misrepresented that that uh, class, they call it RMR-1029, it's the name of the class that held the anthrax, they say that was under Ivan's control. Well, it turns out probably 100 people or so at just at one facility, which is the Fort Detrick uh, facility, U.S. Army, uh, Medical Research Institute for Infectious Diseases, which is why we call it U.S. Amrit, because you don't want to say all that. Um, over 100 people at that one facility had access to that flask of that anthrax. It was not kept under lock and key like the FBI likes to 
give people the impression, but it's worse than that. The, the anthrax in that 1029 flask had two components. One component was from Bruce Ivan's anthrax made at Fort Detrick. Um, it's called 1030, RMR 1030. The other component was from Dugway Proving Ground. 85% of the anthrax in this flask, which the FBI says has the fingerprint, came from Dugway, except Dugway was eliminated as a suspect for even being the source of the anthrax by the FBI. And so we, we the lawyers committee, started investigating and trying to figure out why, why would the FBI eliminate Dugway when most of the anthrax that they claim is the fingerprint, as the fingerprint, came from them. And when you dive into the details of the document, to make a longer story short, it turns out that uh, there's no indication that the FBI tested the sample from Dugway. Um, we have the record where the FBI did a search of Dugway, and they collected some samples from the production runs where he made, they made this anthrax that went into Ivan's flask. Uh, the record indicates that all of the anthrax made available to the FBI was, was basically dead. It was not live, meaning it was not viable, could not grow. And if you look at the uh, National Research Council report that came, unfortunately, after the FBI closed its investigation, you learn that the FBI made a decision to first, in submitting, having the labs submit their samples, they established a protocol that required the labs to first regrow from the spores, the anthrax, and then submit that regrown anthrax to the FBI. And, and that was probably in the form of spores or became spores again given the life cycle of the anthrax. But then the FBI required a second step for the labs. They're doing the DNA testing to also, or the FBI lab, to regrow the sample again. Now, the problem with that is if you start with a sample that's not alive in the first place, like the Dugway samples, you're not going to be growing it. So it appears that the FBI created a protocol that would guarantee that the FBI, pardon me, the Dugway samples would not be tested Using, using the DNA analysis. And so the FBI avoided answering the question, which we already know the answer to, logically, uh, from the facts. They avoided telling the public that the Dugway samples also had the fingerprint uh, of the attack anthrax. And by simply avoiding the evidence, they then, you know, on a pretext, eliminated Dugway as a suspect or, or even as a source for the anthrax, which would have been used to grow the attack anthrax by the real suspects. So the, the, but see, the FBI knows all this, of course. What I'm telling you is clear to the FBI and their records. And if you, if you look at the report by um, Richard Lambert, who Barbara mentioned, I think, and Dave may mentioned was the FBI's uh, investigation director for the Amerithrax investigation for four years. 2002 to 2006, he, and I won't repeat all the examples, but he describes a pattern of basically the FBI tying his hands, preventing him from getting to the bottom uh, of the case, and then he was replaced. So uh, there are more details, and we encourage people to, you know, go to our program tomorrow and also click up on the web our petition to Congress. Um, but because uh, Bruce, to make the, the final conclusion, it's sort of a when you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains must be the truth sort of thing from quoting Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. 
Uh, Ivan's flask had two components, Dugway and then Ivan's 1030. 1030 was tested uh, by the FBI for the DNA and did not, I repeat, did not have the fingerprint, which means the only thing left for the presence, to explain the presence of the fingerprint morphs in flask 1029 that Dr. Ivins was associated with means those that fingerprint came from Dugway, and then the FBI essentially covered up the evidence that would have shown that. So that's the short story that I think Barb wanted me to explain. Um, the last thing I'll note there is that uh, one of the crimes will be, including in our petition, which is coming up, the next petition, which is to a grand jury on the anthrax, is the crime of treason, which is where my title for the presentation tomorrow comes from. Um, and it may not be apparent to folks why we're talking about treason here, but remember, the anthrax attacks targeted at least two United States senators and by mere chance uh, did not kill those senators. So it was an attempted assassination of two senators. Um, and we now know that the initial uh, attempts to blame this on Iraq or Al-Qaeda were simply factually false. And these attacks came from a domestic source within the United States, which means that it was treason. So I'll stop there and, and let other, others comment if they wish. May I ask a question about how people react to your work? I mean, these events happened 19 years ago, and a lot of the evidence has been compiled since, and a lot of the aha moments have happened you know, sometimes years after the original event. Right. A lot of this is done and dusted for a lot of people. I mean, you know, judgments in some cases have been made. There's been an official story. The media have sort of put it to bed. And now you're opening all of this up. So when you actually deal with these people face to face, you know, it must seem very real to them because you have a huge amount of evidence now. How do they react? Do they look like, you know, bunnies in, with headlights in their eyes or do they, they look like uh, highly confident? I mean, how, what, what's, what's the body language, the chemistry like when you're actually there? Well, it depends on who your audience is. Um, I think a lot of the folks who are listening to this program will simply say, you know, that makes sense. I suspected something like that, and now I know how the pieces fit. So some people take it that way as explaining something they'd already suspected. Uh, others who will be surprised by it um, because, you know, they sort of bought the FBI story that the FBI sold them uh, on the – state-of-the-art science, and how could that be wrong? And so it comes as a shock, I think, that all that was simply false. It was a cover story. Now, scientists can follow the evidence and say, you know, I see, I see why you're right, and I see why the FBI's approach was not honest. Um, I think the scientists we're talking with at, at the Army facility in, in Maryland, the Fort Detrick facility where Dr. Ivins worked, and we have four of them who've given us declarations under oath that support this petition. You know, they, they've given us a lot of these ideas, some of them as suspicions, and I think we carried it a bit further to try to develop the proof. So I think they're gonna say, you know, this, this simply completes the story for us that we were already developing. Um, a fact that I didn't mention, but should be mentioned is one of the documents supporting our petition is a memorandum for record made by Colonel Anderson in 2008, and he noted that his colleagues, he and his colleagues were developing evidence to show Dr. Ivins was innocent 
and that the FBI's investigation was focused in the wrong direction. Um, but when they went to present, and particularly Colonel Anderson went to present his his uh, collection of evidence to the commander, he was told basically don't bother to just let it go, and that the Secretary of the Army had visited recently and directed the commander to basically squelch any internal investigations of the anthrax attacks and Dr. Ivan's uh, guilt or innocence, uh, and to not criticize the FBI investigation. So that you know, those folks who lived through that are are basically going to, I think, embrace our findings. Now, the real question I think that you may be asking is, you know, what if we present this to Congress, which we're doing, and how are the members of Congress going to react? I can't speak for them, but if I were Senator Leahy or Senator Daschle, and or former Senator Daschle, but Senator Leahy is still there, you know, I would be looking at this seriously because, you know, this is an unsolved crime, and the perpetrators are still out there. Pretty much why everybody should be paying attention to this. Because getting back to your earlier questions, you know, and the sort of uh, smelling the coffee thing, I don't necessarily smell all the coffee that Dave is talking about, but there is a history here. And the use of, of anthrax as a biological weapon by forces within the United States against the people of the United States for political purposes and to pr promote a war is a part of a longer historical pattern. And it does raise the question, you know, whether the COVID thing is part of that pattern or not. I can't answer that. And the Lawyers Committee, as another disclaimer, hasn't investigated that issue yet. So the comments made by Dave or others on COVID are, you know, speaking for themselves personally. But, but, you know, there is this pattern and it well, deserves to be fully investigated. To speak to that, too, uh, Rush Holt, uh, we spoke to Rush Holt. Rush Holt was the congressman that sponsored the bill for the investigation in 2000. Uh, I'm not sure the exact year, but that was the uh, congressional investigation to set up a national commission to investigate it, similar to the 9-11 investigation. And he complimented us on our doggedness, and he told uh, he advised me to keep him in touch. He's not a he's, he left uh, Congress some years ago, but uh, I I think that like as Mick said, I think there'll be an interest. I think there'll be an interest among them. Uh, I think that this sort of fits in with. I think people aren't being they won't be surprised anymore by hearing stuff. I think they all feel that the government is corrupt as anything. And I think that this petition will, will outline that. Uh, in addition to what Mick was saying, there was other things that were uh, very important with, with regards to that anthrax. And that there was a thing called the B-subtilis in there, which uh, that is a, a simulant. It's, it's like the, uh, the uh, lethal anthrax, only this is non-pathogen, uh, what they use this more or less to practice with. And that was in the that Dugway facility that, that Mick was alluding to that had the, the, all the morphs, but it also had the B subtilis. And it, that was like a fingerprint. That could be a fingerprint, but they didn't, they didn't look at that. And then the other one that was kind of a suspect was Battelle. And they had the aerialization. They could make that trillion spore uh, type of anthrax, or they were set up to do that. And they had in their, that type of that that uh, particular anthrax had the silicon and tannin, which uh, was very rare. And they didn't they sort of like pretended it didn't exist. In other words, they were blaming this poor Ivan's guy, 
and he was low on the totem pole as far as the advancement of this type of of, of anthrax. So I, I just wanted to let you know that. Uh, but uh, in reference to what's the reaction to people, uh, people's reaction, uh, I think that it'll be more positive. We'll just keep on plugging away because the, the times will call for it. Uh, sometimes you're ahead of your time in a way. And, you know, the, the sad thing is it's 20 years later almost. Next year will be the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And, uh, you know, we're all getting older. And that's one of the delay tactics they can do. They just keep it, uh, keep on, keeping on, keeping on, keeping on. And eventually those who are the ringleaders are all dead. 